Before we start our end of year final word special, Jeff, a word for our friends at Future Talent who we've been talking about for the last couple of months. And we're going to keep talking about them because as we work towards the end of 2019, the start of 2020, it's presentation nights that people are going to be thinking about at their local cricket clubs and their other sporting clubs. And we have a solution for them. And the solution is a Future Talent. The solution is getting a sporting card, a football card, if you will, or substitute your other sport, a badminton card, (laughs) a curling card, a croquet card, uh, a crocheting card, an underwater hockey card, whatever card you'd like. Um, You can get yourself on it, get your friends on it, your kids, your enemies, your spouses, your uh, teammates, whatever you want to do. Put their stats on the back, put their pictures on the front, put their bios uh, wherever you want them, and then put the card wherever you like. You can pop it on the wall, you can put it in your wallet, you can trade it with your friends but you too can be Gary Buddha Hocking on the card of your choice <laughs> uh, Heath Evans who runs futuretalent.com.au uh, I remember he said to me some years ago that the selfie is the new autograph it was a very sort of Heath thing to say he's always got um, this, uh, views a, a, a broader sort of a bird's eye perspective on, on culture and he's right and, and the footy card endures doesn't it it's the, it's the perfect combination because with a footy card or a card with your details on it there's also a picture and you can get an autograph and you can stack it full of stats and facts and so on. And, you know, uh, coming from a comms background originally, Jeff, I know you've got to sharpen up the message. And the, the message I want to sharpen is, is this. Get rid of participation trophies. They're junk. At the end of the cricket season, don't give your young junior players the same trophy everyone else is getting. Instead, get them a bespoke, tailored footy card or cricket card, as it would be in this case, through futuretalent.com.au. Get yourself... The 15% discount as being a final word listener. So all you need to do is put in the final word at the checkout code there. 15% off. You get yourself a card. You give your players something they will take with them, something unique, something special, something that's a lot more than a trophy. Get onto futuretalent.com.au and find out more. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word. I'm Adam Collins. He's Jeff Lemon. It's New Year's Eve. And every year on New Year's Eve, Jeff, we get together. No matter where we are around the world, in this case, you in Melbourne, me in London, and we wrap the year. But before we do that, we've got a lot to get through because there's been a test match in Melbourne. There's been a test match in Pretoria between South Africa and England to start their series. Um, plenty of issues to chug through. Nerd pledge. It's, it's going to be a busy show. We've got our best of and worst of the year, which we like to do as a a tradition at the close of each year, which we'll be coming to in the second part of the show. We're also picking our WBBL team of the first five years of the comp. (laughs) We've gone deep into the stats, crunched the numbers, and then ultimately picked according to our existing biases anyway. uh, But all of that will be in the second part of the show. We've got, oh, we've got baby countdown. Where are you at with baby countdown, Adam? We're close. Uh, we are. Oh gosh, I think we're six weeks away now. In fact, my my partner Rach is upstairs. It's about. 20 to 12 here and she's so committed to the cause that she's currently building the crib because she knows I'm going to be um, making a racket down here so you know it's been it's been busy it's been exciting we've painted the walls of the room that you stayed in through the summer Jeff so that spare room is now a baby's room and it's going to be gold um, I, I sold it on the idea that it, that it would be like a you know a, a non uh, sort of gender specific colour but what I really wanted it to be was gold on the basis that I can bung up some bright 
brown paint and, and, and oh, make it a Hawthorne-themed room, oh, um, which really kid. isn't the right thing to do to a, a kid at that age. But, no, I, I think it'll be Aussie fucking gold, as, uh, as the 12th man might have said uh, some years ago. But uh, that's, that's, the, that's the update at this end on that front. So, yes, the, the, the countdown clock is well and truly ticking. That poor kid. Imagine being subjected to that. I, I suppose, though, if you're a baby, <laughs> uh, having the poo-wee stripes everywhere is a good form of camouflage when you're just going to be yes. shitting yourself for the first two years of your life. Yeah, that's true, and it, it, it makes you resilient to the uh, to the to the schoolyard jibes that will come your way being a Hawthorne supporter. As this child, even though they'll be brought up in the UK, and being my offspring, uh, they will be very much a Hawthorne member from. Uh, the minute that they uh, that they, they they enter the world. By the way, I'm looking forward to the WBBL team of the five years. We've talked it up for about six weeks or something, and I'm glad we've uh, um, uh, invested a bit of energy into doing that uh, before the year is out. Uh, because of course the WBBL finished a, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm also looking forward to the uh, to the uh, best of and worst of, uh, of of 2019 around the cricketing globe. Big big news for us as well that we have to um, get some teeth into to start off the program is a farewell to our good friend Peter Siddle, Pierre Siddell, P-City, uh, the Siddler, uh, all of the various ways in which he was known. He's, uh, he's called it quits for international cricket. Also, I like that as I was talking about Peter Siddle, my computer thought that I was talking to Siri and has just activated to try to help out. No, I don't need you. Go away. Shush. Shush. I'm talking about Peter Siddle. He's, he's going to play on in domestic cricket in England and Australia, but after um, being brought into the squad for the Boxing Day test and then being behind a couple of players in the queue, I, I think he's decided that, you know, with Pattinson fit and, and, and Hazelwood not far away, there's not much point in hanging around and, and trying to squeeze in another match here or there as an injury fill somewhere or other without much test cricket over the next 12 months. And so he's decided to give the international game away. He timed it beautifully. He suggested in one of his many interviews yesterday, and they were crackers, I listened to a few of them on radio and the press conference as well, that he'd been thinking about this for a while. The sense from the reporting is that he was retained in and around Australian cricket for this summer on the basis that they might use him in the pink ball test matches that were um, held uh, in Adelaide and Brisbane. But of course, he wasn't needed for those. He was pulled into the squad uh, for the Boxing Day test as injury cover. But he, he knew this was the right time, uh, that it was the, the right moment to, to dismount and at Melbourne, there's a lot of great Peter Siddle moments. Uh, the birthday hat trick, of course. Um, there, there will be a, a special celebration of that next year. We're going to insist on it. We talked about it on an episode of the show a, a couple of maybe three or four weeks ago now that um, next November we will have Peter Siddle Day. And if you're listening, Dan Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, um, we, our lobbying begins now that, that Pete's retired. We're going to turn up the volume on that. But um, He'll have a bit more MCG, time too, Peter, to maybe we can get him involved in the campaign. You know, he'll... he'll have Yes. Time to de- dedicate to uh, I'm sure. Well, he's going to be playing for, for Essex, and I'm, I'm sure I'll see plenty of him over here, and um, he's going to be playing for Victoria. But um, w- I like the fact that he did it at the MCG. A memory of Peter Siddle of mine, which goes back a while now, is at the Boxing Day test of 2008, his first test on home soil, when he just runs through South Africa. Uh, he, I think he takes three wickets in the first innings, but that ball to Graham McKenzie through the gate, his first wicket 
at Melbourne, the MCG erupted. Um, it was a special moment, and, and uh, he's always had a, a, a great affinity with, with the G thereafter. So I thought it was nice that he was able to sort of go out on his own terms, on his own home ground. Of course, 67 test matches he played test cricket across 12 years. We've said before many times on the show, Jeff, that he thought he was going to stall on 192 um, test wickets when he was in England in 2015 and not getting an opportunity, but came back the next summer, picked up... Um, six wickets at the Oval came to Australia on 198 then um, finished the job uh, in Adelaide in terms of um, getting to that milestone and, and got those rare but important opportunities came back from some serious injury rehabilitation in 2017 got back into the test side in 2018 in the UAE which was most unexpected but uh, gave him a, a last hurrah a last chapter which culminated in um, being an Ashes victor well not Ashes victor but in, in the side that, that retained the Ashes in England uh, for the first time since 2001 so all told a, a magnificent career one of the best people in the game uh, and I'm glad that he's getting the recognition he deserves and I think it's easy in the 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 image of Siddle as a workhorse you know as, as the hard worker as the control guy the line and length merchant it's easy to forget just how exciting and just how skillful he was as a player mm. you know the first few years of his career when he was genuinely fast when he came on on, on debut in Mahali and badged Gautam Gambier I think it was first ball in test yep. cricket got Tendulkar out for his first wicket was was rapid but also just how skillful he was when it seemed to me like when Australia was really battling and didn't have much of a bowling attack he carried them but when he had really skillful bowlers around him, like the thirteen, fourteen Ashes, he was able to hit that level as well, and and um, you know be be such a skilled operator as the, the third bowler behind Johnson and Harris. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, when 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 you consider that he was on one hundred and ninety two wickets uh, by you know the the the, the winter of twenty fifteen, that means he took that many wickets in the first six years of his his international career. So he was really doing a lot of the spade work for Australia, as you say in a in a transition period, memories of him at Adelaide charging in in an undermanned attack when James Pattinson went yeah. down, trying well, his well, best that was to bowl what, out um, South Africa. Uh, our friend of the show, Rudy Edsall, said would be his yep. lasting memory, and, and I think I agree with this, was was Siddle having bowled himself into the ground in that fourth innings where he, 34, uh, 33 overs he sent down, four for 65, when they had you know two quicks and with, with Pattinson missing and um, Faf Duplessis on, on debut just dead batting the whole day to, to somehow scrape mm. out a draw. Yeah, that's right, and a number of performances like that that wanted a... Brisbane with the hat-trick, but where he was genuinely exciting. And I love the way that he morphed his game into what it needed to be at the end of his career when the pace dropped off. Um, he was able to uh, become a, a, a T20 bowler, really. I mean, look at what he did with the strikers. Who would have thought three or four years ago that Peter Siddle would have a, a second coming as a 20-over bowler? I don't think anyone would have thought that. So that that built the case for why he was able to sort of come back and play those last handful of test matches in the last couple of years. And yeah, I think Australian cricket's better for it, the fact that Siddle's been around the dressing room for the last sort of 18 months un- under the uh, sort of the Justin Langer regime. A lot of players in that side, both batsmen and bowlers, of, I think would have got a lot out of having a guy of Siddle's character and calibre and skill uh, around the dressing room and, and I'm sure he'll be now integral um, in developing the next generation of fast bowlers too. Uh, they, they won't let Piddle Siddle go too far. Yes, he's going to play at Essex and yes, he's going to play for Victoria. He's got 602 first class wickets. He wants to take 700. Uh, look, maybe he can take 800. If he plays three more years of county cricket and, or maybe even four more years and a few more years for Victoria and he doesn't have any international cricket considerations, he, he could... Uh, 
um, really piled on here in the last stanza of his uh, professional cricketing life. But whether that ends, you know, next month or, or in four years' time, he's going to have a big responsibility, I think, in nurturing uh, Australian cricketing talent for a long period of time. Well, there was a handover of sorts with the Boxing Day test with the, the big Victorian fast bowler um, handing over to James <laughs> Pattinson to take up that role, um, watching Pattinson steam in on that fourth morning when he ran through New Zealand's top order, knocked over Latham, Williamson, Taylor in the space of a couple of overs, was genuinely exciting uh, to see. And, and you know, Siddle said that he, he regarded that as a handover as well. Pattinson, he describes as his little brother. So they've played together yeah. so much coming up through the ranks. And, um, and James Pattinson was able to uh, be hugely influential with Australia's bowling attack. I reckon that's the best I've seen this sort of contemporary group of bowlers all work together with Cummins, Stark and Pattinson in this match, they were just relentless against New Zealand. They suffocated them. They gave them absolutely no air through that whole test match and it was no surprise that on a decent if slow batting surface, New Zealand weren't able to muster anything substantial in either innings. It reminded me of when they bowled out England for 67 at Leeds on the second day of what ended up being a losing test match remarkably but that was when we talked about them having sort of the the Rolls Royce on the road for the first time with the three right arm quicks but Stark wasn't part of that side he was 12th man but with Hazelwood missing through injury it it was Stark, Pattinson, Cummins combining together it must have been the first time those three bowlers played together in a test match I can't imagine there would have been another time when they were all fit at the same time Uh, so uh, look that was uh, despite the fact that they, I should add, um, debuted in consecutive test matches in 2011, of course, Cummins uh, in South Africa and then and then Stark and uh, Pattinson together at Brisbane in the next yeah. test that Australia played later that, that same month. Of course, there's been so many um, injuries that set back. Pattinson and Cummins have collectively, Andrew Sampson calculated on the SCN coverage, missed 135 tests between the two of them over the last Jesus. eight years uh, through injury. Of course, Cummins is... Um, not suffered from uh, many setbacks recently, but Pattinson, having gone through that uh, well-documented uh, bit of surgery, we, we interviewed him on the final word about that before the Lord's Test match this year, but I've never seen Pattinson, you talk about the fourth day when he went through uh, New Zealand in the second innings, that third morning when Cummins and Pattinson opened the attack, uh, I think they only got one wicket in that initial uh, spell between them I've, I've, I, I, I can't imagine the two of them can bowl better than that uh, individually or collectively it was quintessential bowling in partnerships Pattinson had a drop catch early on but he continued to, to charge and he got a bit of a reward later on with, with three wickets Cummins I mean his record at the MCG is ridiculous in his last um, in his uh, last test match there against India last year he took 6 for 27 in the second innings and he took 5 for not many uh, this week against New Zealand so 11 for 45 I think it was across those two innings uh, he just continues to uh, remind us on a weekly basis why he's the best fast bowler in the world and having Pattinson by his side and Stark being freed up we said the other week Jeff that with, without having sort of the pressure of needing to be all things to all people Stark can run in there with this remodelled action and, and sort of express himself without having to worry too much about keeping the run rate down or being overly accurate because it's fairly clear that Cummins now plays that role as well Yeah but on the flip side to that Stark is, has been a lot more accurate in his last few test matches. No, he has, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he doesn't have to worry about it, is what I'm trying to say, yeah. Yeah, um, but, but it's it's that he's got the bonus of that freedom, but also that the action has mm. helped him get a, a bit tighter. I noticed his bounces were more threatening in Melbourne. He was yep. getting the bouncer up at the head, um, getting the right length, where often the Mitchell Stark bouncer goes too far 
to leg side or too far to the offside and doesn't really make the batsman have to do much to get out of the way. Um, mm, so mm. that that was notable. But uh, look, it, it was just notable how they... I mean, they, they flogged New Zealand. There's no two ways about that. Look, Tom Blundell made that 100 and, and good on him, but it wasn't an innings that meant a whole lot except maybe to him personally. Uh, obviously, he's already got 100 that he made on debuts, but making one opening the batting is, is a different story against some serious quicks. But he was also very lucky. He should have been out to Mitchell Stark for a duck and was not given. It was The Australians didn't review it. It was three reds, um, you know, would have been out on any other day. So uh, I think a, a grain of salt with that and, and got, a, got a bit lucky on the top edge on a number of occasions as well. So it, it w- wasn't a chanceless mm. inning. So I don't think there's much for New Zealand to take out of these first two tests, except that their bowlers put in a couple of um, amazing shifts with the ball in terms of endurance. But that's they're forced to do that because their batsmen don't give them any support. Yeah, I, I saw the Blundell innings a bit differently. I thought he batted out of his skin. Uh, certainly when uh, uh, wickets were falling around him, he struck the ball beautifully. And yes, he could have been out first ball to Stark uh, had they reviewed. But that, that's that's part of the game. It's very rare that you'll make a Test 100 without being you know out in one form or another, getting sure. some... Some degree of luck, and I, I just thought that in him there, there's you know, making a, a hundred against an Australian attack going as well as they were um, in a second innings where you know you're up against it and everyone knows you're going to lose the test matches isn't for nothing. Uh, much in the same way that I think that Neil Wagner, even though they've they've lost this series, but he picked up his 200th test wicket in just 46 starts, which is the same rate that uh, Andy Roberts picked up his 200th test wicket, and I think again it might have been Andrew Sampson that. Um, or maybe it was Ben Jones actually. Oh, anyway, one of the um, one of those uh, um, <laughs> one of our friends who works in numbers uh, pulled up that um, reference point with Andy Roberts, another player who um, was known for having a vicious short ball. Um, and Wagner uh, enhanced his reputation yet again uh, in this Test match. He, he's picked up Steve Smith four times on the bounce. I mean, not many not many bowlers can say that. Smith's only averaged thirty one this year. I know he made eighty five in the first dig. At Melbourne, but he didn't get the chance to sort of flourish the way that we have become mm. accustomed when Smith gets on on top of an attack, and that's uh, and, and look, he, he was out to the short ball both times. Granted, as I say, the first time he'd already made a, a considerable amount of runs, but um, yeah, look, I, I don't want to say like vulnerability or, or chink in the armour or, or something like that, but um, it's been it's been quite a few times in a row now that Smith's been caught sort of around the corner or on the pull shot from short bowling, so it, it's going to be something that he's going to have to put up with. For, for quite a while now each team I'm sure is going to start at Smith with uh, fielders spread around the leg side in close as well potentially coming around the wicket at him to, to make life as, as awkward as possible before he gets set I assume it'll be for the rest of his career you know when when you feel like you've got maybe one way against a really good player yeah. it, it's going to be 10 more years of um, leg slips and, and short balls but I, I think so I, I, I can't remember the exact number this might have been a Samson stat as well I think it was that Wagner bowling to Warner and Smith in this series was seven for 37, something around that mark, as in, you know, seven wickets conceded 37 runs uh, bowling to Australia's two best players. So, you know, outstanding from him on an individual basis, but... New Zealand haven't been able to keep the lineup quiet. There's always been someone who's bobbed up with runs, even if those two haven't. So Travis Head was that player in Melbourne, made that 100. It was the the least chancey 100, <laughs> the least chancey innings I think I've seen him play. Um, a few 
dicey moments slashing outside off stump, but but certainly not as many as as I've seen. You know, I've seen Travis Head play more loose shots and making forty than I saw him. You know, making one hundred and fourteen at Melbourne. Yeah, a couple of things on that. So one, they're getting the the dividend for the investment they made in Travis Head last summer. Of course, Head wouldn't have played. Uh, against India last year had Smith and Warner and, and, and Bancroft been available it would have been hard to have found a way for him into the 11 but Langer uh, and Payne said at the time that uh, in head they were and I think Marcus Harris uh, was in, in the same camp in that they, they were giving these guys an opportunity that they would hope would pay off later and it is with head so yes he was the, arguably the last player picked um, this week and yes I note that Tim Payne said that was all funny buggers with the, the idea of playing five bowlers and they were just saying it to um, to dupe the New Zealanders via the media. I should add, um, I probably wouldn't have admitted that if I was Payne uh, to the media because, uh, of course, uh, a, a lot of his pre-game uh, commentary now will be viewed with scepticism. But anyway, that's by the by. But, uh, yeah, so in head, they, they, they're getting that, that dividend now. But I think with Payne, actually, that was almost as an important innings because when Payne walks out, much as it was in Perth, yeah, there were plenty of runs on the board, but New Zealand had done a pretty good job of keeping the run rate in check. So if they had a ran through the lower order on that second morning, uh, which, you know, for, for half a moment, it looked like they might have the ability mm. to do. Payne walks out. I, I can't remember how far into day two, but it wasn't long into it where they picked up that fifth wicket. If they, they fold there, and of course we've seen Australia's lower order fold, well, we've seen yeah. Australia full stop fold quite a bit over the journey uh, in the last three or four years. Then New Zealand are back in the game, but Payne played a, a wonderful counter-attacking brisk innings where he took on the short ball from the outset. Um, he made 84, 79. I think it was. 79, sorry. Probably his best chance to make a test ton, but put that to one side. For all of those uh, um, out there who want Adam Gilchrist to play for Australia, I, I'm sorry, I mean Alex Carey to play for Australia next week. What they really want Adam Gilchrist when they talk about Carey. Yeah. When you hear people go, and, and I want Alex Carey to play for Australia too, but the, the language they use around him, they just want a guy to come out and fucking smash him. Um, and, and, they, and they see, um, you know, um, pain as the impediment to, to Carey coming in and doing precisely that, but they might have to... Which isn't to say he'd, he'd be able to do it. I mean, all of this is based on five or six good games for Kerry at the World Cup, you know, in a one-day tournament, and apparently he's supposed to be able to dominate Test cricket off the back of that. Well, well he did make 100 for SA the other week, and I think, I mean, a huge amount of goodwill towards Kerry from you and I and everyone else that's following the Australian team around the world. But, yeah, where I get a bit frustrated is the idea that because Kerry's good, we should get rid of the captain. <laughs> so, um, you know, Payne yeah. uh, broke some records with the gloves this week. I think it, he, his average catches per... Oh, I haven't got it in my per head right now. He's most most dismissals from thirty tests by any wicketkeeper. So he's now right, played thirty test matches, and and from that first thirty, he's got the what one hundred and thirty dismissals or thereabouts. Uh, and yeah, he's yeah. also got the the highest dismissals per innings of any keeper on record. Well, as Langer, well, as Langer said repeatedly, he wants Payne's first job to be captain, second job to be wicketkeeper, and third job to be batsman. And on the first metric. They've won four tests on the bounce this summer, all inside four days, two of them by an innings and two of them um, significant um, wins. Uh, so on his first most important job, tick, uh, with the gloves, absolutely a tick, kept beautifully again this week, I thought. Um, took some really important catches uh, diving around. And then he, he's also gone and, and, and made important runs at a, at a you know, a, a time of the test match where New Zealand could have got back into it. So mm. um, Payne's picked a really good moment to have a, an excellent summer, I feel. Special mention I would like to make to the Crick Buzz headline um, after the fourth day, which read, Pattinson blows top order to leave New Zealand reeling at tea. 
Um, that was, that was <laughs> It's good. Be, was, uh, unorthodox way of getting them out, yeah. but, you know, uh, or distracting them as it were. But Well, you yeah. leave them reeling. You, know, you do whatever it takes. Um, as, as I commented at the time, it's all about him having the perfect wrist position. Um, and you know, that's, that's what makes the magic happen. That's what makes the ball We know move. he does everything that he, everything that James Patterson does is with, uh, with gusto. So I'm yeah. sure um, it would have worked as, as a distraction method. Um, uh, some other bits on the actual cricket stuff. Nathan Lyon um, for the second test in a row, maybe the third test in a row, come to think of it, is taking wickets in the final innings of the match and that's something that um, we always judge a spinner by so Lions 4 in to finish it off was was uh, significant given that he hadn't had much to do in the test match to that point and the other um, the talking point Jeff which pervaded so much of the, the the coverage was what I'm now calling the great Australian tradition we've got the Boxing Day test match we've got backyard cricket in the week after Christmas and we've got fucking whinging about the DRS every single fucking day I mean I, I get I get it I understand frustration I get that it's not perfect I get that there are, there are moments where all of us fall into the trap of undermining the technology but I mean it, it's it's akin to climate change scepticism now to an extent, the, the way that people refer to the ball tracking and all the rest of it. I, I mean, I, I, again, I understand why it's something that people want to talk about, but it feels like we've just reached this stage where it's every test match we spend so much time talking about the projection data. I mean, at, at some point, do we just need to accept the fact that it, it is what it is? Like it, The DRS is going nowhere and, and kind of hope that the ball tracking will get incrementally better as we go but this has been on balance not on balance mm. this has been irrefutably a good thing for the game it, it's hard to sort of say that players getting um, skewered when they weren't out as they did for 135 years was a good thing now that we can t- prevent that from happening more often than not well what we've done is massively reduce the the error Rate and the uh, the breadth of the game in which the errors happen. So at the moment, it's that because the real outrageous outliers aren't really there. You know, there's the odd one like the the Mitchell Santner hit on the glove and not given on the review by LM Dar, which I'm, I'm we'll sure come we, to that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm sure you could talk about that for ten minutes, but maybe let's not. Uh, but as far as LBWs go none of them are outrageous like yeah you might get a little bit unlucky that you're Kane Williamson and you're given out to one just clipping the leg stump and and someone else is given not out to a similar delivery or whatever it might be but none of them are outrageous calls you can't look at those decisions and say oh he's been absolutely robbed there in being given out because he's a hit on the pads in front of middle by a ball swinging into him and maybe it's swinging down a bit but it's close enough that it's reasonable for it to be given out and others are close enough that it's not crazy for them to be given not out even the uh, the shot was at Blundell I think with the pull shot against Pattinson that was overturned where umpire long fired him he was trying to pull the ball that wasn't that short and it got through him and it hit him on the back leg while he was crouching and trying to pull. Yep. Now, the projection said it was clearing the stumps by a couple of inches and, and the commentary was saying, oh, that's an absolute shocker, that's a terrible decision, which is bullshit. It wasn't a terrible decision because if you look at it live, he was crouching, he was spinning, he missed it and he was hit what looked like in front of, well, it was in front of off stump and there was a bit more bounce on it than uh, than the umpire factored in. But it looked pretty good live. I, I would have been happy for it to be given live. And if you looked at it again without the projection, I wouldn't have said that was a an unfair call. You might have said it, it might be going over, but it, it wasn't a terrible decision. So the, the decisions that are argued with are well within 
the bounds of a reasonable call to be made uh, on the whole. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and I mean, it, it's it's so cliche to say it's eliminated the howler, but it kind of has. And if that's the if that's the, the upside, and the downside has been that we get sometimes shitty about a dismissal that has been you know within the margins that you're talking about, not going the way that we would like them to. I, yeah, I just sort of feel as though we should invest more energy in making sure that the third umpire, um, when uh, when it, it, when interpreting the technology um, is able to do that more efficiently, and I, of course they're, they're talking about Alim Dar and the terrible decision he made not to give Mitchell Santner out caught off the the sweatband of the glove. This comes, and I mean, we don't need to go through the dismissal because it was so clear cut. And you can tell that, by the way, uh, on the basis of the way the commentators, all of the commentators were just going through their motions. Indeed, I was on the Guardian OBO. I'd already written wicket and all the information, knowing full well that it was going to be given out and just waiting for the red mm. light to come on. And, and I was flabbergasted, as everyone was, that, that Alim Dar didn't see that as having hit the um, wrist, uh, well, sorry, the, um, the sweatband given there was a hot spot, there was a snicko, there was super slow motion, every bit of evidence you could need. Which, for mine, all that means is one thing. We need to have specialist television umpires to interpret the technology because every test match or every couple of test matches, there is something like this. And that, I feel, is what undermines DRS. I think that umpires probably work too much. I think you've got such a small group of on the elite panel and they're constantly at matches all around the world. Absolutely. They're travelling constantly, they're standing constantly. I think you could help them out a lot by relieving them of third umpire duties so that you only need two standing umpires at each game, although I suppose that does leave you vulnerable to the reserve if there's an injury or something. But to you, you don't necessarily need to be an elite panel standing umpire to sit in the third umpire's box and and feedback information to the centre of the ground in that way. But I will stick up for LM Dar in this case because I've seen him being absolutely pilloried on social media. He's got one of the best decision rates out of the elite panel. He's got, he's got yep. very good numbers over the last couple of years. He's somehow viewed as making a lot of mistakes when I don't think he necessarily does. Maybe he's just made a few prominent ones. And even on that call, I could understand that he could say that that ball is possibly hitting the arm guard and the arm guard is dragging the wristband of the glove up and it may not be actually hitting the wristband of the glove itself. It probably is, but I could understand him saying, I'm not 100% sure that it is, therefore I'm sticking with the on-field call. I think that's more what needs to be up for debate is whether the on-field call needs to be sacrosanct if there's you know strong evidence the other way. But um, yeah, well, I think it, well, the fact there was a mark on the glove was was on on the uh, wristband was what what um but they just brushed over it. We hmm. saw it on the flash up on the screen. Anyway, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of that. It's more just the idea that you know back in Brisbane we were talking about the front foot no ball with umpire Goff. He was in the third umpire chair at the time. I don't mind having three of them there, by the way. Have three of them there. One of them, like, literally resting or, or, you know, performing the duties of the fourth umpire, as we currently know it, which is basically to bring out the bring out the, the, the ball, the, the box of balls when one's out of shape. Let yeah. the third umpire do that and not have as much on their mind, if you like, in yep. a series. So they can, in the space of two test matches, they know that in one of them that they won't have as much to deal with. And, you know, let's train up a group of um, officials who can do the, do the technology thing full time. And as I say, if it ends up being a bunch of, younger umpires well all the better if that can be the training ground for umpires and mm. they get a chance to be a third umpire first and then end up graduating to the elite panel well maybe there's some some merit in, in looking at all of that there was another test match going on at the same time finished on the same day uh, also in four days uh, i rather enjoyed the 
the night three stuff coming out of England, South Africa, where all of the, the England press were saying, oh, maybe it's on, maybe it's on, maybe the miracle will happen again. Um, and then after they were roundly thrashed the following day, there were all of these pieces saying, well, of course a miracle wasn't going to happen again. Yeah, look, it, you know, I, I don't know whether it was clear cut as that. I think it was a bit of that was um, ha- having a bit of fun with the fact that Stokes was walking out. Well, no, it was, it was less about Stokes and more about where the game position compared to Headingley. There were a lot of similarities, um, coincidentally, um, appearing in, in that England chase. I was um, uh, working on that third afternoon on that game, on the england Africa game, um, uh, watching it and, and talking about it. And uh, the... Uh, the the probability of England pulling off a 379 run chase was obviously next to nothing. But gee, they started well, <laughs> and suddenly you're like, well, maybe they'll be maybe they'll be none for 100 at stumps or number 120, and it, it had that feeling to it. And they the ass had fallen out almost literally, given the um, the uh, the uh, the illness that's gone through the England camp. It was a fairly gutsy effort in many respects to get as close as they did, on the basis that at least half of the side that were playing had been affected by this terrible bout of gastro which has gone through the squad which has affected um, a number of people outside of the playing 11 as well coaches uh, I think um, some of the media pack as well in any case it's one of those things that's really um, it's to do with the drinking water actually I, I didn't get the full story here but to do with the storm and the drinking water and anyway one thing led to another and, and Joss Butler you know couldn't take the field at all to field on on day three Ben Stokes was captaining in Joe Root's absence who was also off the field for significant chunks of time so um, that, look they, they did well to get as close as they did with all that in mind but still South Africa had lost five on the trot going into this test um, you know Vernon Philander has uh, has signed up to play county cricket uh, this year he's leaving international cricket so there's a, a fair bit of um, not not distaste around that I think that but still the, the idea that South African cricket isn't at the peak of its powers England had a good opportunity here a really good opportunity in this first test match on a bouncy pitch which should have suited them and and they couldn't uh, couldn't get the job done so um, look, uh, and that sort of what I feel to be sort of lazy critique that, oh, well, at least they're good in white ball cricket or something like if you're good in white ball cricket then you can't be good in red ball cricket or... Yeah, that's what I've been wondering the about. It, it seems like there have been yeah, a lot of teams who've been good at both in history. Like, what's the idea yeah. that you can't possibly be good in test cricket if you're good at 50 overs? Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm missing something here. Now, look, I know they really wanted to win the World Cup this year and, of course, they did, but does that mean that we just accept that their test cricket, especially their batting, isn't good enough to play long... Like, other teams do it. Other players do it. Like, mm. why Why are they any different? It seems to be something... Almost like a get-out-of-jail card. Like, oh, well, at least they're still good at 50-over cricket and at least they'll, you know, win the T20 World Cup next year so we can kind of accept that the test team will have, you know, a, 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 you know won't be able to bat for long periods of time. I, I don't know whether those two things need to be um, reconciled sooner rather than later. Otherwise, they're going to lose any opportunity uh, of making the final two of the World Test Championship. That'll slip away quickly. Well, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, how, like, obviously, because Virat Kohli's made 43 one-day hundreds, he's shit at test cricket where he's only made 27 yeah. test hundreds. You know, <laughs> obviously, Steve Waugh's team that kept winning the World Cup was also really bad at test cricket where they won 16 tests in a row around the same era. You know, mm. like, what, why can't you be good cricketers? Why can't you switch your modes and why can't you pick players who are appropriate to one format or the other look they're one down in the series that they they play their next test uh, uh must correspond with the next australia uh, new zealand test yeah. i think it starts new on the third or fourth yeah. of january so we'll keep a close eye on that 
on the final word. Uh, Jeff, we'll talk a little bit perhaps next week about the uh, the Super Series that's being talked about between the big three. Uh, uh, needless to say, um, it, it was a, a big discussion point before Christmas that it looks like the big three is back, baby. The big three is back. CA, the BCCI and the England and Wales Cricket Board are, are combining to now initiate some sort of Super Series, according to Sarav Ganguly, the the president of the BCCI, they'll they'll rope in a fourth country each year. It'll sit outside of the official ICC um, One Day International Championship. It'll be a scheduling nightmare. Uh, I mean, as I say, we'll talk more about this uh, with those who cover this far closer than you and I have in the last two or three years, Jeff. But um, it, it doesn't look good, does it? It doesn't look good in the same week as Ireland had a couple of test matches cancelled. Um, one yes. because they couldn't afford to host it and one because Sri Lanka's broadcast deal uh, broadcaster didn't want to, was refusing to pay the money to actually, you know, stage the coverage of a test match, which the ICC requires. So, yeah, we'll mm. we'll get into that when we've got a bit more time to do it. Um, but yeah. I think we should polish off segment one with... a. Brief bit of Nerd Pledge. The last Nerd Pledge for the year. What a year it's been for Nerd Pledge. The year in which Nerd <laughs> Pledge was invented by our listener, Philip Meng, and evolved into what it has become. It's become Nerd Pledge. It's become the game where people use the patron platform to support the show financially and also to pose us questions um, involving numbers and what they mean in the cricketing context. They send us in an amount of dollars that corresponds to a cricket number. Uh, we had a couple of non-Nerd Pledge pledges that I wanted to say thanks to as well Lydia Trotter has sent one in there's a restaurant called Trotter's on Ligon Street in Melbourne that's an institution <laughs> I wonder if Lydia was involved uh, Cam Tero which is a great name just sounds like he's from the future um, from some sort of dystopian novel Cam Tero he's a hover car <laughs> driver um, <laughs> and like I think it was Ben Jenkins who made the observation that if you're writing a, a YA novel set in the future you just have to invent one really stupid sounding alternative swear word and that gives you the real authenticity where, where you're like <laughs> I need that danking hover car or whatever it is um, Jesse Sinclair has signed up and Chris Unwin has signed up as well so thank you to all of those people. It's Jesse Sinclair I wonder if it's uh, the same Jesse Sinclair that used to uh, star in Neighbours. Maybe it is Jeff maybe, maybe it is. Maybe, and maybe Chris Unwin of Allen and Unwin. I don't know. We, we, mm. These are the things we'll get to the bottom of. But if we can put them together <laughs> and publish Jesse Sinclair's book, then uh, we, we will be onto something. So uh, our existing subscriber, Jamo, has changed his pledge to 201, which I'm sure is a Dizzy Gillespie nod, uh, Jason Gillespie's highest test score. Thanks, Jamo. Richard Johnson has come through with 239. What does 239 mean to you, Adam? Well, there's a couple, isn't there? We, we've been at a couple of 239s uh, in yes. recent years. Uh, one of which, um, <laughs> one of which uh, I was talking about last week. So Adam Voges in Wellington, uh, of course, yep. made 239. That was where um, poor old umpire Richard Illingworth uh, said that uh, said that uh, Doug Bracewell oversteps when bowling. Uh, Voges on about nine seven. or ten memories. Seven. Seven, was it right? And because... Uh, Clean because bowl, the off stump, clunk. Yeah, the whole bit. And, and of course, within seconds, we realised that Bracewell had been behind the line. There's no way of 
reviewing that. There's no recourse for that uh, other than to say that you've got to play on, fellas. And a day and a half later, Voges was on 239. I think that was back-to-back double hundreds. He made one in um, in Tasmania. Maybe not in back-to-back, Hobart. but two. Yeah, he two made in, one in two Hobart. Two in three games. Yeah, or, something or like that. Whatever it was, whatever it was yeah. two in four games. He was in that re- remarkable run of form that, that uh, enabled him to finish his Test career with the second highest batting average of all time, or whatever it was. So, um, I, I like to think it could be Voges. But speaking of players with very high batting averages, Smith made two hundred and thirty-nine at the Wacker, wasn't it? Or was it? Yeah, track? yeah, in the Ashes, his Wacker. Ashes double. Yeah. yeah, it was it was the last test at the Wacker when they had to dry out the pitch with um, leaf blowers on Hair the dry. last day after the <laughs> after the the rainstorm that um, that almost killed the curator and almost devoured Joe Root. Um, Two thirty nine is what Smith made when he was out early on the fifth morning, was it or fourth morning to Jimmy Anderson? I think it was the yeah, I think it was the, the fourth, fourth morning. morning when he 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 batted the whole way through and. Uh, and with Mitchell Marsh, he and Mitch put on 300-plus. Uh, mm. uh, Mitchell Marsh, of course, on his way to what was his maiden test 100. 181. And Smith 239 joining Adam Voges, the, the man from West Australia. So it could be a Smith or a Voges. If I was if I was to pick one or the other, I'm going to go with Vogesy on the basis that he's, a, he, he's been a friend of ours and uh, and uh, and great to us uh, both when he was playing and, and as a as a commentator after he finished up. So um, I love the fact that um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll quickly reflect on my favourite Adam Voges, Jeff Lemon story, which is that um, at when Sandpaper blew up um, uh, on the Saturday and then the test match finished on the Sunday and I was out with Adam till let's just say fairly late uh, that night and perhaps into the wee hours of the morning and you'd made mention to me that you wanted to climb Table Mountain the next day and, and Adam hadn't had a chance to do it yet and, he, and I go why don't you two do it together thinking to myself that you know Adam will be fairly dusty you know you're not known for your fitness there might even itself out I was very much wrong wasn't I oh, Jeff? very uh, wrong don't, don't take on a professional athlete even after a after a big night the night before because you were no match for him. He, he went up there like a mountain goat um, and was just, you know, every the turn of every turn of the track there was just Adam Vaux just waiting for me to like crawl up <laughs> on my hands and knees, gasping <laughs> and dying, at which point he would be completely fresh because he would have had a good couple of minutes rest while waiting and then he'd be off up the next leg. He was very nice about yeah. it, very gracious. Um, like a Sherpa. Yep, it was just, just up he went up the cliff. So, Richard Johnson, we're going to go with Voges, but let us know if we're wrong. Um, David Ward, I'm wondering if this is the David Ward that I went to high school with. If it is, hello, Wardy, has come through with a 213, which obviously is the, the Edgebaston semi-final score, but that could be relevant because it was the last night of a school term in 1999 when I was up until three or four in the morning watching the end of that match live with a, a bunch of friends from school. Um, you know, something the, with a bunch of nangs or something. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a, the, the package of jazz cigarettes or whatever it might have been. Um, something was involved. All I know is that the room was very invested in that result. So if that is David Ward, um, then that's a nice little synchrony that that would be Edgebaston 99. So I'll go with that. I don't know if my list is... 213 plans. is definitely the number we've received most in this new pledge experience, yeah. by the way. I mean, there are some numbers that come up a lot. Yep. And 213, that must be the fifth or sixth time we, we've seen it appear in the spreadsheet. 
It's also Elise Perry's um, double ton from North Sydney Oval. So there's there's a couple yep. of nice two thirteens in Australian cricket. Now I don't know if my list has been weird because Graham B. I'm sure we did this a few weeks ago, um, but just in case we didn't, the the seven for sixty six was Phil Tufnell at the Oval that we discussed it. Yep. We did discuss it a few weeks ago on the show. I'm sure. Um, yep, so I must ha- I must have a duplicate in the list. But there's another seven for which, um, well, I'm sure it must be a seven for which you might be able to get, Adam, um, from Max okay. Bryant. Max Bryant. Oh, I know. Seven. I, I, I've, uh, well, I'll give, Max Bryant has been on been overseas. For the, Max Bryant was actually there for the Voges 239. Was he? Max was, Max was there okay. watching a Wellington. He was also there in, uh, in, uh, in Jamaica in, uh, in 2015 on tour. So Max is a, a good Australian tourist. Anyway, please proceed. He's a, good, he's a Voges specialist. <laughs> yes, indeed. yes, indeed. Um, or so, no, Dominica was the Virtus 100, wasn't it? Oh, no, Domin- case, he, he may have been a Dominica as well for that matter. But anyway, in any case, he, he knows his cricket. $7.23 is his pledge. So I'm tipping 7 for 23. And I am also tipping that you are going to have an idea about a uh, 7 for 23. It was a, an iconic Australian bowling performance. A seven for twenty-three, an iconic Australian bowling performance. Uh, mm, let me just get, get. Let me just sort of go through the go through the motions here a little bit. So it's a it's an iconic Australian bowling performance. Uh, is it? it, it let's get. Uh, would I be warm in saying it's a spinner? Yeah, it's definitely a spinner. Definitely a spinner. Um, seven but- for twenty-three. A, a spinner who's taken... Oh, gee, this is a... It's an Australian bowler. Yep. In a test match, obviously. No, yep. no spinner would have taken 7 for 23 in a limited overs game. Um, it's not Warren. Hang on. Or is it Warren? Did Warren... Um, uh, hang on. Warren took 7 for 23. Um, I, I looked at it just recently. So did he, did he take it against Pakistan? He did. And did he take it against Pakistan in, in 95, 96? Which will mean he took it at Sydney or Perth or Brisbane. Uh, Brisbane is where they routed them. So I think that's probably it. Warn seven for Pakistan. Brisbane, Brisbane, November 1995. Bang on. Yeah, we go. We got there in the end. We got there in the end. We got there in the end. He, he had an unbelievable record against Pakistan, Warning. He averaged 14 against them. He had that series in 2002, 2003, in, where they were playing in Sharjah and Sri Lanka. That mm. was the first time where Pakistan had to move their, their test offshore. And he, he equaled Dennis Lilly's record for the most amount of wickets taken by an Australian bowler in a, in a three-test series. I think he picked up... Oh, was near enough to 30 wickets in three test matches. And yes, um, that, that started earlier on in his career. And with that, seven for... Well, that is Max Bryant's Nerd Pledge, and I'm pretty sure that one's right. So if you want to play the game of Nerd Pledge, you send us a number. You go to the Patreon page. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash the final word, and then you can sign up with X number of dollars and cents per show or per month or whatever it is. You can leave it up for as long as you want. You can cancel it when you like, um, and you can throw a few bucks in the tin to keep the show going. And thanks so much to everyone for all their support this year on Nerd Pledge. As I mentioned before, we have been focusing on, on the relationship between cricket and climate change in recent times. There's been a fantastic report which has came out this week which focuses on precisely that, uh, looking at the Boxing Day Test match and the effect that climate change may have on that into the future. So uh, with us joining at the final word is Paul Sinclair from the Australian Conservation Foundation. 
Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to the Final Word Podcast. This is the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And we do have Paul Sinclair with us. He's the Campaigns Director at the Australian Conservation Foundation. He had a big week last week uh, on the basis of a report that's been uh, put out there into the public domain called Caught Behind Climate Change, Extreme Heat and the Boxing Day Test. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, let's just uh, start at the at the very top, I suppose, um, and what your report was uh, setting out to achieve uh, when you thought that it, w- it was worth looking into uh, weather patterns uh, and how it might affect the Boxing Day test into the future? Yeah, well, we set out to do the report because Australia at the moment has a really uh, failure of uh, leadership from the, our national government on climate change, and we think it's a key role for sporting bodies like Cricket Australia to step up into that vacuum. And one of the reasons for that is that Climate change is being fueled by the burning of coal and gas, and it's supercharging extreme weather events like wildfire, like extreme heat, like drought. And those things all have a direct impact on cricket, cricketers, and the people who love the game. So, our report had a look at well, based on the fact that we're currently on a, we're increasing the amount of pollution year on year in Australia, in the world. What does that mean for iconic cultural events like the Boxing Day Test? And what it, what we found with our, with researchers from the Monash University was that under the current trajectory of pollution that Cricket Australia and the ICC would need to look at moving the Boxing Day Test to cooler months in early November or March because we'll have increasing hot days in December and January. Yeah, people might hear that and, and think that that's an alarmist thing to say, that Melbourne has a cooler climate than um, some of the cities that we're seeing affected so dramatically by bushfires at the moment, that we don't traditionally think of Victoria that way, although, of course, the, we go through hot periods each year. But um, if you can just sort of spell out in a bit more detail why um, increased temperatures will uh, affect a city like Melbourne and why cricket's more affected uh, than, than other sports might be, especially, I guess, uh, uh, leaning into the research that was done uh, earlier in the year in the, in the Hit for Six report. Yeah, look, um, just just to start off with your first point about being alarmist, I'm, where I'm calling from you today is sort of on the edge of Gippsland where, you know, 40,000 people have been told to evacuate, evacuate East Gippsland. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty extraordinary times we're living in. So cricket is one of the, the sports most affected um, by climate change. Anyone who's watched the game, played the game, know that weather is a key determinant on what happens in a game. Tanya Aldred has written very eloquently about the way that she feels that cricketers are sort of more connected to their natural environment than many other field sports, which I tend to agree with. So cricket is affected by climate change by extreme uh, heat. So where it gets too hot for players to play, um, we know that from research that's been done that you know wicket keepers and batsmen who are all padded up in gear, they really struggle to stay cool and they're at particular risk. But it's also true that um, as having you know been president of a community cricket club for a long time, the millennium drought in Australia in the early part of the 2000s, there were hundreds of games of AFL. Australian rules football called off. There were a hundred games called off out down in Geelong because of, of cricket, because drought 
meant there wasn't enough water to water the pitches, the ovals became un unsafe. And that's another factor that um, directly impacts on cricket. In our report, we've got a case study from Red Cliffs in Northern Victoria, which is a very hot part of the state. They had games called off a couple of weeks ago, and not because of extreme heat, um, although they have had days of 47 degrees up there in the last month. They were unable to play because the Murray River system had been polluted with toxic blue-green algal blooms that are created by low flow in the river, dying vegetation in the river, hot weather. If people come into contact with toxic blue and algal blooms, the consequences at their extreme level can be fatal. So, you know, you've got this set of interlocking factors that climate change is creating that impacts on the game and the people who play. Paul, one of the things you mentioned in the report is that Cricket Australia didn't have any uh, direct policy about environmental sustainability or um, anything publicly stated. It seems like that's hopefully going to change over the next 12 months or so. Um, but just casting my mind around, it seems like most other sporting bodies haven't done much in this space either, even though they have they have other good causes that they've been vocal about over the last um, decade or so, but the sustainability of the sports hasn't really been addressed. Why do you think it's been an issue that's been overlooked by um, professional sport for so long? Um, yeah, I, th I think it's interesting and I've I'm hoping, like you, that, that that will change for cricket, but also for other sports like tennis and cycling, even the women's Australian rules footy that kicks off in, you know, late January is going to be an issue, rugby league as well. Hopefully there, there will be change that happens. Uh, I think, look, generally I think some sports administrators are reticent about engaging in championing particular issues. Um, if we look back at the end of uh, the, the movement to end apartheid in the, in the early 70s uh, through the 1980s. Sport played a key role in championing the end of the racist regime in South Africa. I mean, they were administrators were pushed by large social movements of ordinary citizens saying, that, look, we've had enough of this, we want you to change. I suspect that's going to be required for Cricket Australia and other organisations as well. So I think there's a natural conservatism in amongst sports administrators and particularly in cricket that is meaning that they are at ser serious risk of being caught behind a serious threat to the game. Cricket Australia in particular, I, I'm I suppose concerned about their response, uh, Jeff, in a lot of ways if you look at who's managing their uh, uh, sustainability policy that they're talking about delivering this year, it's been run out of their communications and media team. To me, that's still suggesting that Cricket Australia see climate change as a public relations issue rather than something that directly affects their business. And their business is the stewardship of the game of cricket in Australia. And I think there's a number of ramifications and implications of that that Cricket Australia board need to think carefully about. There's a lot of debate in Australia around the responsibilities of company directors. Cricket Australia board members are as accountable under the Corporations Act as the directors of BHP, for example. It's no longer possible to say that climate change was a surprise. It's well established. If Cricket Australia, Tennis Australia, the board members of other national governing bodies are not considering the impact of climate change on the viability of the 
their sport, then I think it opens up the real possibility that those board members will be individually individually liable for financial impacts on their sport. Paul, is it naive of me to think that something like um, climate change, which is a, an objective empirical issue, should not be viewed as a political issue? It seems like when you, you talk about something like this subject, various people say, oh, you, that's that's politics, whereas to me it seems like that's um, a fact or not a fact. Well, it, I mean, Australia is like a cul-de-sac, a depressing sort of cul-de-sac in global climate policy, right? We came last of 57 nations assessed at the, you know, the, the recent UN conference in Madrid. Like, we're slightly embarrassing, like we're that crazy older uncle at Christmas dinner. We've got a particular set of challenges in Australia that I think are playing to what you're suggesting is that it's a highly politicised and we need to sort of break that apart. And I think sport can play a key role in um, communicating with lots of different people who might have, who might vote different ways at various elections, but still understand that the viability of the game is important to how their life defining what their life is, giving meaning to their lives. Yeah, there was a number of things in, in the report that, that were interesting uh, in relation to the, the administration. Uh, you're referencing the, the board directors and the Corporations Act that they you know, might um, breach their, their duty of care and health responsibilities to their participants. And just to drill down a bit on, on that, we, we touched on it before, but um, the, the number of days in a business as usual uh, context, that is to say if, if we don't uh, reduce our, our, our emissions in Australia... Um, and Melbourne specifically, so bringing it back to the idea that the Boxing Day test could, could be under threat. Um, the research that you've done and with Monash University points to uh, the, the number of days which will tip into that point uh, which, we, uh, w- which will make cricket impossible to be played, or, or rather you could play it, but you're subjecting uh, the participants to considerable risk. There is research around that talks about, you know, you'll end up having in both Melbourne and Sydney under the business-as-usual you know, heading towards a 3.2 degree temperature rise. But like, heaven forbid, please don't let that happen. Uh, but if that's business as usual, you yeah. know, you, you're going to have temperatures more regularly around the 50 degree mark in December, January. You know, so that in a, in a city, like a city is like, it's not just the temperature. There's a whole set of other factors that amplify temperature in a city. So, um the, all the concrete in the city during the day draws in that heat. So you can you can have extraordinary temperatures up into the 60, 70 degrees of particular infrastructure that's just sucking heat out of the atmosphere. In some parts of Melbourne, you know, the, the temperature gauge might say it's 38, but you need to add five degrees on top of that because of the heat that's radiating out of the concrete, the impermeable surfaces, as, they, as the engineers like to call it, that seeps heat during the day and at night but won't, things don't cool down because the city then slowly re- releases all that heat that it's been storing uh, during the day. So that'll have an impact on elite players, certainly. It'll have a big impact on the 80,000 spectators that head along to the Boxing Day test. And I think that is one of the key mm. things we need to focus on. Like, you know, I'm president of a community cricket club. We've got 21 teams of boys and girls, men's and women's teams. We don't have um, handf- a handful of doctors in fancy tracksuits to run out every time someone feels crook. We don't have ice baths. We don't have fans. 
like it's at the grassroots level. It's the, you know, quarter of a million people who strap on their pads each weekend to play cricket around this country. That is where the impacts are seriously going to be felt. And Cricket Australia has a duty of care to stand up and actually speak to action that protects those people and their families and their friends. And if they don't, they're abdicating the responsibility to cricket and our country. Uh, Paul Sinclair, the report is called Caught Behind Climate Change, Extreme Heat and the Boxing Day Test. As we've said on the final word in the past with our conversation with Tanya Aldred a, a couple of weeks ago, cricket is already being affected by climate change. The sooner that people get their heads wrapped around that, the better. And I'm sure that this report will make a contribution to that. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, having a, a further conversation with us. Thanks, guys. Jeff, it's that time of the year where people just love getting their teeth into some cricket writing. People love reading cricket books at this time of year. They love reading cricket magazines at this time of year. So lucky we can bring that together neatly through our relationship with Wisden Cricket Monthly. The final word on Wisden Cricket Monthly, we've got a fantastic offer going at the moment which gives you the chance to spend the first half of 2020 getting stuck into the best cricket magazine in the world for just 10 Australian dollars. One of the things about Wisdom Cricket Monthly is uh, that it's, it comes out every month and one of the other things is that it's about cricket. Um, and so those are two <laughs> things that might help you with your forward planning. You can get the digital edition of WCM on your tablet or whatever device you like to use for £5.99, or which is about 10 Australian dollars, with the special uh final word secret digital url it's, it's just a url it's just a website you just go there and, and you buy it yeah so it's a bitly uh, we said last week that when we were talking to mel jones when we uh, talked about the the code there that it, w- it was too complicated before so we've just made it now bitly wcm final so bit.ly if you're listening to a podcast you surely know what a bitly shortening uh, address is bit.ly forward slash WCM final, so Wisden Cricket Monthly Final. You look, you can expect if you went to a, 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 a news agent, if they exist anymore, and bought a magazine, you might spend £6 or $10 on a magazine, one edition. We're talking about six of them. Half a year subscription, that works out to be, uh, you know, barely, uh, just a little bit over... Uh, a, a pound per edition which is an absolute mm-hmm. steal um, the, the new edition that's out at the moment features all the teams of the year for the men and the women and so on um, some excellent columns in there Andrew Miller has his new spot in there interviews with Viv Richards, Monty Panesar and there's the Golden Summer uh, which is a great part of the magazine with Ellie Oldroyd from the BBC uh, I'm in there as usual this week I'm talking about David Warner and cancel culture um, but the key information here Jeff is that it's cheap as chips. It's the best cricket magazine in the world. And because of your relationship and being a listener to The Final Word, it can be all yours for five ninety nine in pounds or 10 bucks in Australian dollars by just going to bit.ly forward slash WCM final. Adam still has blood on his knuckles from picking the teams of the year. So uh, do him a solid and get in there and subscribe. Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Paul Sinclair for making himself available between Christmas and New Year. It's obviously a very 
busy time. Uh, one thing I neglected to mention, Jeff, is that it's pretty sad, I reckon, that they had to spend a few pages at the start of the report explaining the, the rationale for taking action on climate change to begin with. Like, I feel like we've regressed so badly uh, in the discourse around uh, carbon pollution and climate change that like the consensus has been diminished to such an extent i suppose that we now have to kind of go back to core principles whenever we talk about it it feels like we're well beyond that and now we're back in that space again it's a weird thing where it like we were saying in the interview it's been made into a political position to worry about like actually having a livable place you know where, where you can breathe the air and like not die but that's not the case in other countries in the world where there are lots of conservative governments who are taking a lot of action on this because a conservative approach would be to make sure that your house is not on fire or to take out insurance against the possibility of it being on fire. So yeah, that, that, that was always the case over here. That was always the case that David Cameron, when he was opposition leader, made is that it would be criminal to take a risk on something like this. It's it's like a it's well put it's an insurance policy on the future and uh, yes uh, um, as a lot of um, a lot of people uh, like to say this is just part of the great Australian culture war which has been going for the better part of a quarter of a century now um, at least 20 years and this has been bundled up with all of that so hopefully in some way the fact that we are now able to talk authoritatively about it in relation to cricket it might cause to be decoupled from politics a little bit. I hope that can be one small part of this is that when, when people see that something that we love and cherish so much, the sport that we invest so much energy in, could be threatened into the future, uh, existential threats to the game into the future, that it might cause uh, the, yeah, the conversation to move forward for the better. And if your big concerns are jobs and economic growth, then it's in your best interest to you know encourage industries that are going to provide a lot of um, economic return and, and avoid a lot of economic damage. But anyway, anyway, let's get into the, uh, the we've we've well we haven't picked it yet, but we're going to thrash it out on the show. Our WBBL team of the first five years, we had the fifth women's big bash this year. Um, and look, when when you go through the numbers. Um, and you go through our memories having followed all of those seasons pretty closely some of the positions pick themselves um, some of them th- there might be some tears before bedtime before your bedtime because it's pretty late <laughs> in London but um, we, we're going to have to get through this are you ready Adam to take a journey with me oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this Jeff we've uh, we, we've loved the WBBL five years into it such a success we, we should be picking a composite side this is good stuff right so I'm going to start with openers because I think that these these are the the unequivocal positions really, and and some of the picks might seem obvious to people who who don't follow the sport that closely. But then you have to look at the numbers to realise why we're not just you know picking the Australian team basically because mm. you know that that won't be entirely what's happened. But as far as opening the batting, it has to be two wicket keepers who both play for Australia. It has to be Beth Mooney with Elisa Healy. It has to be Mooney because she's got the second most runs ever in the comp. She's made at least 400 in every season of the competition. She's made 2,576 WBBL runs, which is ridiculous. The third best average at 45, a really high strike rate in the comp of 122. She's made the most... 50-plus scores in the competition. 26 times she's gone Mm. past 50. Twice she's made 100. And she's been best on ground in two winning finals the last two years for the Brisbane Heat. So beat that. It's pretty comprehensive. Bethany Louise Mooney. I, mean, I remember the, the first time we, we were commentating on HF was on your on your couch uh, back in 
white line wireless mode. I mean, it must be the first couple of weeks of WBBL1. And she made a classy half century, picked up a couple of stumpings along the way. And we were all in straight away, weren't we? We were desperate to see her get an opportunity for the Australian side. She did later that summer and, and uh, you know, really consolidated their spot. That 100 she made uh, against England at Canberra sticks around uh, in a lot of our conversations too. But it's the WBBLs where she's always done her finest work. And yes, without a doubt, the first name on this team sheet. What I love particularly about Mooney is she has by far the most fours in the competition history, 297 boundaries, but she's only hit 14 sixes. So she goes along the carpet. And then that's this beautiful contrast in styles. Elisa Healy, 44 sixes. Mm. Uh, She's fourth on the six hitting list. (laughs) She's also just topped a couple of thousand runs in the comp. She's made 300s. She's got a lower average at 29, but she's got a strike rate of 135, which is the third best in the history of the comp opening the batting. So you put those two together, you get Healy with the turbo charge and, and Mooney with the, the class and, and the carpet play. Yeah, those three centuries that Healy made as well stands alone as the most in the comp, equal most in the comp. Look, I, I think, again, you look at the way that players have used the WBBL to, to bolster their credentials. When this comp started in 2015, Healy was neither here nor there. In fact, you could make the case, and I think we probably did, that Mooney had overtaken her as a as a contender for the national team. In the end, there's room for both, and there's no question of that. But Healy propelled herself to the next level, um, and a big part of that story is the way that she was able to completely take control of that Sydney Sixers side at the top of the list, go to the top of the order, um, make a truckload of runs there, which which naturally led towards her doing that job for Australia and doing it now better than anyone in the world. There were you know other contenders for that opening spot. Danny Wyatt's done a great job there yep. for the Renegades, um, but probably hasn't played as many seasons, has, doesn't have the same bulk of games. Rachel Priest... Um, 1,400 runs for the Renegades and the Thunder at a, a good strike rate but um, doesn't quite have the same bulk of runs. And then there are lots of other players who open for their franchises, as in Elise Perry, Meg Lanning, Elise Villani, Susie Bates, players like that, Sophie Devine, but who who wouldn't be able to, to push anyone out of the opening spot in this team but could come into play down the order. Yeah, whenever picking one of those teams, you have to sort of shoehorn players in at, at spots that don't necessarily play uh, weeks a week, and I, and I would I would add Danny White sort of uh, could easily um, justify a spot in there too. I think she missed one year, but um, on the whole has been uh, sort of the most important player for the Renegades more often than not. So um, I think all of them are in contention as we move to that middle order. First drop for me, I think that's where you have to get Elise Perry into the team. Obviously, she has to be there because she's made the most runs in the history of the competition, yep. 2,612 runs. She's got the highest average by a distance. Average is 53 and a half. That's a ridiculous in, in average. That is a, that is a ridiculous <laughs> T20 average. That's, that's, uh, no, no one has that T20 average apart from her and Coley, really. That's, that's, that's who you're looking at. Yeah, but Barbara's arm. Barbara's arm, Mark. Yeah. So it's probably those three. She's got 19 scores over 50. Um, She's also boosted her strike rate a lot in the last couple of seasons. So she's up to 105, but heading north. She's third in the comp for sixes. She's hit 45 sixes, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. And and her bowling hasn't been a big influence in Big Bash, only 32 wickets and going at six and a half and over, but it's still useful to, to have as an option. So look, Perry usually opens for the sixes because that, that gives her the most time to build into an innings. But I think at first drop, she's still got that that opportunity if an early wicket falls to come in and steady and, and she's got the hitting if she does need to come in late. Yeah, that surprises me with, the, with that stat you read out about third most sixes, 45 of them. I'd venture that 
more than half of those have been in the last two seasons. So when she came back from that Definitely. World T20 in, in 2018 where she was kind of neither here nor there, she wasn't as important to the side as she'd been in previous campaigns for Australia, comes she back to the WBBL. Well, she, well she, she shuffled different parts through that, yeah. that tournament. She batted anywhere from three to seven. But the point is, is that there was no need, there was no guarantee that she'd be in the top four. And she never would say, because she's too classy to say this, but she would have been privately angry about that and used the WBBL to um, change her game uh, in, I guess, the same way that Alex Blackwell did, um, albeit at the other end of her career, uh, and came out the other end of it now as someone who can clear the ropes with the best of them, as shown by that stat. Meg Lanning, I feel, has to come in at four. She missed a season with a shoulder injury, so she's played at least 20-odd fewer matches than most of those around her on, on the records list, but she's still made 1,982 runs, so she's still the sixth-highest run scorer despite missing mm. quite a few games. Averages 47 and strikes at 121 runs per 100 balls. She's made 20 scores over 50, so she's just been a, a run machine in this format, and she's got to come into this team somewhere. Yeah, super consistent. Uh, she's made more than 400 runs in every completed season. I think she was above 500 three times. Uh, just gets better and better post that operation, uh, which kept her out for the season of 17-18. But she came back and was magnificent this year, finished off the season with, I think, her third century in the WBBL across the four years that she's played in. So no question uh, that, that Meg Lanning slots in at four. What a star. So so from there, you've got those top four locked and then it's a question of whether five and six you you shift to all-rounders or, or you have room for another specialist bat, mm. I, I suppose. Elise Villani's um, one of only five to top 2,000 runs. Um, for my money, though, she, she hasn't really been involved in successful teams. The Perth Scorchers underperformed the first couple of years. She played for the Melbourne Stars this year who were a dog's breakfast. Made the final once with the Scorchers but didn't make any runs in that final. And I think just compared to those other specialist bat players, can't challenge in terms of being able to deliver in the big moments or um, you know, averages 32, strike rate 113, so good numbers, but I don't feel like she's influenced a season really. Yeah, you go back to the start of the, this uh, this tournament, uh, or this competition when there was Villani, Bates, Charlotte Edwards, Nicole Bolton, they, they were making the most amount of runs in the WBBL mm. and Perth, but that, that band's been broken up for, for the most part, and they've all sort of shifted around, and obviously Charlotte Edwards doesn't play anymore, Bates plays for Adelaide, Villani plays for Melbourne, but um, yeah, they, they were punishing then, and she made some huge scores there, very quick scores as well, um, it, it was as though when she made runs, it was usually going at a strike rate of 200, and when she didn't make runs, uh, it was when she, she, she would struggle, like she'd make sort of 10 off 12 or something like that, so I think you or, or 10 off 22, or you know, she often had the really slow starts, that's right. it just didn't yeah, work Yeah, so I think you're probably right in saying that if we've got to squeeze two players in, there's a long list to get through here, but uh, Villani not having played in, in, a, in an overly successful side might be squeezed out. Yeah, the, the, so the, I think the names that you and I have, have both appreciated over time, Susie Bates, Stefani Taylor, Amy Satterthwaite, Jess Duffin, Heather Knight, they're, they're, they're probably the main contenders for batting spots. Um, mm. Bates doesn't quite have the batting numbers in that she only goes at about a run a ball um, and averages 28 but her leadership and her fielding are outstanding and she adds a lot with the ball 13th best economy rate in the five years of the WBBL she's picked up 53 wickets in her time almost a wicket per 
game that she's played. Um, Stefani Taylor also 49 wickets in 48 innings and she's actually got almost the best strike rate in the history of the comp. She's Get, takes a wicket every 16 balls so there are a couple of players who you know only go at a runner ball with the bat an average sort of mid-20s but they've got that bowling aspect as well um, I think if you're picking I think if you're looking at like you're looking at Stefani Taylor who was player of the tournament possibly in the first year maybe the second year and Heather Knight who plays a very similar role uh, if you're picking between the two of them I feel bad about leaving Knight out of the side by the way because she's been very good with the ball um, usually playing, usually bowling at difficult times uh, with her off spin, mm. and but also doing the job often as captain of a struggling side. Although it must be said, when she was at the helm early on, she was leading a, uh, an inferior side to the finals. Did so on a couple of occasions. The yeah. first two years of the WBBL, the Hurricanes only really had Knight as an international consistent international player. They they had a, um, a they had a lack they lacked in in Australian players, and, and yet she sort of guided them to the postseason um, both in, in two, 2015 and 2016. So I'm tempted by that, but I think that on balance, Stefani Taylor, as you say, she's not just a good bowler in T20 cricket, she's a fantastic bowler and continues to be you know one of the most important batters as well. So each of those players I mentioned has uh, well over a 1,000 runs in the comp, um, but yeah, Bates, Taylor, Satterthwaite and... Those three all, all go at about a runner ball with the bat. Heather Knight striking at 107. Jess oh, Duffin right. up at 100 and, 114. So she's the quickest scorer, 1,293 runs at 32. She's played 20-odd fewer matches than the others as well. So, But I think she's... She's a player who's really only hit her stride in the last couple of seasons. I think she underperformed in the, the first couple of years of WBBL. She definitely did. So, so the Duffin story is, uh, is, is probably... We wouldn't be talking about Jess Duffin if this was a conversation before this season, whereas every other player would be in the frame. So, uh, look, it, so if, we locked in, if we've locked in Lanning at four, what we're really looking mm. for, we're, we're probably squeezing... Four players into two here, aren't we? And if we put a line through Villani, well, it's Bates, Taylor. Well, maybe none of... The, potentially none of these players could make it because we could also have all-rounders at five, six, seven. You no, know, sure, the, the, sure. So... So, so I think I think we're we're thinking about these players, and then we've got to have a look at the um, the, the contenders for the all-round spots, uh, depending where they go. Sophie Devine, Jess Jonathan, Grace Harris. Aaron Burns, Dane Vanikirk, Ash Gardner, Sammy Joe Johnson—they're—they're—they're—they're they're, they're, they're the names. I guess we're talking about the names who've had stories attached to them in the WBBL. So Sophie Devine is in the team somewhere, not quite sure definitely. where, but she's definitely in third most runs in the history of the comp. 2,174, massive strike rate of 129.5, averages just under 40, has hit 88 sixes in the competition. The next best is 58. So she's hit 30 more over the rope than the next best player. Um, that's 88 sixes in 66 innings, and she's one of only a couple of players to uh, to be better than one six per batting innings. Uh, Lizelle Lee and Chloe Tryon, the South Africans, have, have hit about one six per innings. Sophie's well over that. And uh, at the same time, she's also picked up 60 wickets, averaging 22. Goes at seven and over, but often bowls at the death. And she's got 
basic one of the highest strike rates in the comp. She takes a wicket every three overs that she's bowled. So put all that together, and that's a, an incredible package. Yeah, I think that um, I, I said before that Beth Mooney is the first name on the team sheet. Well, the first player picked for mine is Sophie Devine. I think that across mm. the the five seasons, the way that she it all kind of came together so beautifully this year, she's there, um, and she's obviously needing to bat early enough to influence the game. So I, I want her in at five, irrespective of what we do um, with six, okay. seven. So if we if we pick Devine at five, it probably leaves us one player from the previous very impressive list of specialist bats mm. to come in at six more as like an insurance policy if things go wrong who do we want coming yeah. in next and look um, I think that's where I, I think maybe I want Stefani Taylor for yeah because she's got the she's got the it's Taylor or Bates for me Stefani Taylor or Susie Bates okay. in terms of having the control but also being a bowling option yeah I think Stefani Taylor um, mostly because if you're flipping a coin um, mm. her, her bowling it, 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 I mean if she didn't bat she'd still be in the side as a spinner she's a legitimate all rounder yep. so I think that um, and certainly in 20 over cricket that's the case so let's go with Staff Taylor um, Stefani Taylor in at 6 and then we've got sort of uh, to make a decision about 7 whether we pick another all rounder type now I think there's a a couple of very good candidates here who also uh, get plenty of spin on the ball, which might offset the need for a couple of spinners. So I'm thinking Ash mm-hmm. Gardner. Uh, I'm thinking Danae Van Niekerk. Like either of those mm-hmm. could be listed at seven, uh, especially in the case of Gardner. If you, I mean, even though this should be a side principally picked on numbers, as far as big moments are concerned, when she went to yep. North Sydney Oval to start the tournament in 2000. And was it 2016 maybe 2017 one or the other I think it was 16 uh, and went out and hit that you know audacious century where she hit I think it was 13 sixes on the way to um, the fastest uh, hundred for a woman ever in T20 cricket like that's iconic that was on primetime television uh, on the opening weekend of the tournament so I probably want Gardner in uh, and also, I should mm. add, she's been really important in, in two premierships for the Sixers, uh, batting at number three or number four. So it's not just a short-term thing. Gardner's been there for, for you know, yep. the bulk of the successful period. So even though I might be listing her at seven, um, I, 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 give my, I reserve the right to, to promote her as and when. I guess she's a player who can have an impact at seven as well. At seven, you need someone who can come in and hit from, from the off. That's true. Um, so I... Th- and I think, you know, I think Aaron Burns has been a role player but probably hasn't had enough opportunity to really force a way into this team. Uh, Sammy Joe Johnson is a, a decent pinch hitter but only averages 12, um, even though she's got a high strike rate. So they're, they're missing out for me. Grace Harris is one who could come in at seven. She's got the, the best strike rate in the comp behind Chloe Tryon, who's only played a handful of games. So Harris, her strike rate's 137 and a half. Mm. Um, so she could be an option at at seven, but I reckon Gardner, I think, is more reliable with the bat. But we've got an issue here, which is that I reckon Jess Jonathan has to be in this side, and I think maybe she's the one batting at six rather than Stefani Taylor, because Jess Jonathan, we think of her as a bowler. She's fifth on the wickets list. She's taken 75 wickets in the comp. She's got one of the very best economy rates, goes at 6.1 and over. Yeah. 
and she's 12th on the runs list and you don't necessarily think of her batting but she's batted top order for the heat most of her time yep she's made 1378 runs averaging 28 striking at 112 so she's made about as many runs as taylor she's made them faster and she's a much better bowler so i reckon if you if you have your hitter at 7 being like a, a gardner or a harris you maybe Jonathan, 6 don't you? 6 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. I think that's that's quite elegant uh, in that we can um, have big hitters in Devine and, and, and Gardner at five and seven notionally. Um, split the difference with Jonathan batting at six uh, uh, to, to balance out the, the top order. I mean, I, I'd like to include Grace Harris for, again, providing yep. some of the biggest moments, those two centuries on the opening weekend of the whole yeah. comp at the, at the Junction Oval. Um, she, she really lit the, the place alight. But it does feel as though she... He's just behind, for mine anyway, Gardner in the pecking order on the basis that Gardner's been more consistent um, and and also been more punishing across a broader span of games. So I think I'd probably want her. I feel bad to be leaving Van Niekerk out if we're including uh, Jonathan. Uh, not so much for the runs, but of course with the ball, um, she's been so consistent, Van Niekerk, with her leg spin. But um, perhaps, I'm, yeah. uh, perhaps I'm being slightly... Uh, influenced there by how well she's bowled in the uh, Kia Super League, which of course is a different competition altogether. So um, let, let's go with that, where we've got Divine batting five, Jonathan six, Gardner seven, which means we've got what eight, nine, ten, eleven. We've probably got room there for yeah. um, three legitimate specialists. Well, well maybe the four, four straight up bowlers. I think we've got enough batting there. Yeah, uh, I, I think so. Well, also, I mean, Vanika could be your specialist spinner. She's got a yeah. wicket every 19 balls. She goes at 6.3 and over. She's picked up 64 wickets in 63 True. bowling innings. But your other candidates as spinners are Molly Strano, Amanda Wellington, Sophie Molyneux, Maisie Gibson. Strano has to be in the team. She's got, she'll be the first yep. to 100 wickets in the WBBL. She's currently on 96 from 72 innings. So... You know, exceptional um, ability to, to get bunches of wickets. Close to the best strike rate. So Sam Betts has bowled in 20-odd games. Um, Strano's bowled in 70-plus uh, and has a strike rate of a wicket every 16 balls, averages 17 runs a wicket, goes at 6.4 and over. So she's an outstanding candidate. And I think it's I think it's more, you know, do you pick another spinner to partner her um, is, is really the question. Yeah, I want Strano in my team because she does it on TV. We've said this before that she's got a great record for televised games and let's assume that uh, this side would be required to play uh, on the big stage. So, yep, uh, Strano's definitely uh, justified her spot as the primary spinner, as a finger spinner. So she'll spin the ball the other way to Jonathan, which uh, which is important to note in this. So that, again, helps balance it a little bit. It probably means that given what we've seen in the, in the Big Bash, which has uh, had a preference for spin, we could include another spinner. Like we could go mm. with a wrist spinner in, in Wellington or indeed another finger spinner in Molyneux because Molyneux um, has been... Um, and by the way, if that were the case, Molyneux would certainly bat ahead of Strano. So Molyneux could bat... Um, eight, which feels like a bit of a waste mm. of resource, given that she's opened the batting a lot for uh, for the Renegades. She's you know averaged twenty two and struck at one hundred and seven, but quite a few half centuries in there um, as a legitimate all rounder. So you could see, I, 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 even though Maisie Gibson is again another player we've really enjoyed the work of, I don't think she's quite. Um, in the same frame as Wellington in terms of her capacity or her broader influence. Of course, Amanda Wellington yeah. was the bowler who who uh, who, um, 
who, who um, knocked over Meg Lanning around her legs. There were no cameras there. Um, I was there with Jesse Hogan uh, and Izzy Westbury, and we um, complained immediately about the fact that there was no ability to watch it back, and within a week or so, there was a, there was a camera at every game. So not to say we were the reason why they brought the camera in, but Amanda Wellington was in that people yeah. wanted to see that back, uh, and that had a big influence on you know, the, the idea of now a, a WBBL game not being televised is ridiculous. I mean, in some way, you can see every moment of this competition, and I think Wellington had mm. a big influence on that, as she did the initial um, burst of enthusiasm around those games on Channel 10. I remember Adam Gilchrist saying that um, he was reminded of Shane Warne watching her bowl um, in one of those very first televised games at Adelaide Oval. So I, I'm, you know, maybe it's a bit of an emotional pick on my on mine as well, that I just mm. loved watching Wellington's progression, loved watching her, um, uh, her quick graduation to the national side based on what she did for the strikers. But um, if we've got Strano bowling off spin and Jonathan bowling left arm orthodox, and I think there probably is room uh, for Amanda Wellington to be uh, our our ninth player picked as the league spinner. Yeah, I, I think we could say that we're picking the team that has defined the WBBL, yep. and in that way, she she's the flag flying player for me. She's the one who did generate that early buzz by you know delivering those amazing spells and you know, shredding the ball past the outside edge and mm. getting people excited about, about watching this format of cricket. Sixty three wickets. In 71 outings, 22 balls a wicket, goes at 6.6 and over. So, you know, those are pretty outstanding figures in T20 cricket. And she can also bat. She made that unbeaten 50 in the final, yep. just gone. Um, oh, sorry, I think she was run out of the last ball. But, you know, she, she was the reason the strikers were in that final with 50 off 30-odd balls. So can bat as well. I'm very tempted to play them both, although that only leaves us room for two specialist quicks. Well, it means that we, if, if, but, but I think that's okay. I think that's okay. I think we're, we're, we're down to, in this scenario, we'd have Wellington. We've got Perry and Devine. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think, I think we've got, I think we're, we're sorted for Ian Wiz. Like if Wellington bats eight and Strano bats nine, let's say, we've got room for hmm. two seamers out and out, which is probably sufficient when Perry, even though her numbers aren't that flattering in this in this particular competition, she um, she there's no, that, that's partly informed by the fact that like eight bowlers always play bowl for the sixes. It's part of their strategy. Yeah. Everyone bowls, so it means they rely less on Perry. So, and as we said before, Devine's got a pretty useful record with the ball in the big bash too. So, if we're looking at two out and out seamers, I think we got that just about right. And, and by the way, if we're picking an out and out seamer, um, I, I think it's probably hard to overlook Marizan Cap. She'd be the first that came to mind for me. Yeah. Look, it, it probably has to be, but if I can just give you a couple of snapshots, Catherine Brunt only played 44 games, but the best economy rate ever in the competition, 5.15 and over. Yep. Uh, Leah Tahuhu also goes at at 5, 5.96 and over, top 10 all-time for economy rate, has played four seasons. Renee Farrell, 79 wickets in 66 bowling mm. innings, mm. which is outstanding. Nicola Carey, 75 wickets from 70 innings, so she's right up there on the wicket-takers list as well and can bat. Heather Graham, 72 wickets from 70 innings, so they're some of the, the highest wicket-takers in the comp. Graham's um, economy rate's up closer to seven, although she tends to... Uh, bowl closer to the death. 
uh, Marazan Cap, also a crazy economy rate, 5.18 and over and 77 wickets and can bat. So I think that definitely means that she's one of the, the ones picked. Megan Shoot, 5.67 runs and over, incredibly frugal, 63 wickets. Um, her strike rate's a little lower. She only takes a wicket every 25 balls, but I think that's because batters tend to see her off at the start. They just don't play any shots against her. Yep. Um, and then and then Sarah Ailey, second all-time for wickets, 83 wickets from 72 innings. Averages 17, goes at 6.4 and over and takes a wicket every 16 balls. So yeah. you go through that list. How do you find anyone to leave out? Well, yeah, that, that's that's a good point. Let's go through a couple of them in a bit more detail. So Brunt, yes, absolutely, as far as what she did in her comparatively brief spell in the big bash. With the bat too, she used to come in in the top six for the, the Scorchers uh, and it, often in the top four for that matter. But I'm going to overlook her on the basis that she hasn't been out here the last couple of years um, I sure, feel like I feel like Farrell was really important at the start especially particularly year one when they in, won in it. that winning title for the Thunder yeah. in the first year she was huge in the she semi-final she basically won them that comp yeah she won in the semi-final so she's weighted heavily I'm probably thinking that Kerry's been a fraction expensive I think if her more of an all-rounder if we're looking at specialist yeah. seamers I'm probably just going past Kerry likewise Graham I, if look at uh, she she really has used the the WBBL to get into international consideration as an all rounder. Usually bats in the top six, always bowls her four overs, uh, and and usually does it very well. Uh, Megan Shoot, like you say, that she's been less um, prolific as far as wickets are concerned. I think they do try and see her off, um, and so her influence is perhaps limited, uh, which sounds crazy given that she's the best T20 bowler in the world according to the rankings at the moment, I'm pretty sure, but um, it leads all roads lead to Ailey for me uh, um, back-to-back premierships with the Sydney Sixers um, got her way into the national side, albeit belatedly, through her efforts there, um, a fantastic final at the Wacker Ground when the Sixers should have played a home final that year but were um, playing in, in WA due to the vagaries of the comp at the time, but um, she took, I think, four wickets in that final, Jeff in a real tight um, effort where I, where she was player of the match there. Um, incredible that, to think that she takes a wicket every 16 balls, averages 17, um, only goes at about six and over, 83 wickets. So I feel like, you know, Cap and Ailey just, I mean, we're, we're, we're splitting hairs here as far as leaving out a player like Renee Farrell or a player like Megan Shute, uh, indeed a, a player like Catherine Brunt. But if you're basing it purely on what they've done in the Women's Big Bash League, then I think Ailey and Cap get the nod for me. I'm happy with that. Um, and, and perhaps one of those other seamers is our 12th in order yes. to you know ha- have the ability to bring in a seamer for a spinner if the conditions dictate. I like that. So who, who do you pick out of Farrell and Shoot, or do you just go for a squad of 13 and yeah, copy Yeah, I, I think it's probably Shoot because of her seniority uh, and, and because, uh, you know, she... she is the number one bowler in, in, in the world. So if we're going to have someone on the bench ready to roll out, uh, the, the, you know, can you imagine how um, potent Shoot and uh, and Cat would be opening the bowling together? They wouldn't get them off the square. So I, I like the idea of having her up our sleeve. The, uh, the counter-argument I would make is that Megan Shoot hasn't won a title for her team and Renee Farrell has. Yeah, um, she's yeah. taken She's taken more wickets um, at a substantially higher strike rate and their economy well but shoots economy rate 5.6 and over i think if you yeah if you've got a bowler doing that off the top then you're immediately 
putting all of the pressure on the opposition. It's, it's only one. It's only though. Like Farrell's economy rate six point three. So we're looking at 0.6 of a run per over. So across a match, where I mean, we're looking at three, two and a half runs. Yeah. So if if it's just that, given that Farrell has been more more potent with wickets and has won the title, uh, and you know we all know how important that first year was. Um, yeah, maybe maybe it is Farrell on reflection uh, and. Um, no, no, uh, no offence uh, to, to Megan Shute at all. Who um, she finds herself in plenty of composite sides. I think she'll be okay. So let, let's go. With, <laughs> let's go with Renee Farrell. Also, I guess recognising the fact that she has just retired from uh, professional cricket, semi-professional cricket, um, in in this edition of the comp. So uh, yeah, it's, it's nice. To, to, I'm, I'm sure Megan Shute will be in our teams of the year in, in in many years to come. So we're going Beth Mooney with Elisa Healy to open. Elise Perry at three. Meg Lanning at four. Sophie Devine at five. Jess. John Jonathan at six, uh, Ash Gardner at seven, Molly Strano at eight, uh, or Marazan Cap at eight. Marazan Cap's think, probably I, I the better Mar- I think Marazan Cap, then Amanda Wellington would probably be eight, then Amanda nine. Wellington at nine, Molly Strano at ten, and Sarah, uh, no, Sarah Ailey at ten, Sarah Molly Strano at, 10, at 11. Molly Strano at 11. That's a pretty good team. That's Jeff. a pretty strong side with Renee Farrell to come in if we need an extra seamer. I think we've done well there. That's, uh, that's That was well worth doing. Uh, and again, a reminder that this has been great. I mean, this has been a wonderful thing to think where when we started this podcast, the WBBL didn't exist. Uh, and now, mm. can you imagine an Australian summer without it? You can't. Um, so it shows that in a very short space of time, uh, big progress can be made. Uh, and uh, well played uh, to those that had the vision and the foresight to, to push this forward, to get it off the ground, get it on television, get it in front of people and, and totally change the game. Well... Let's look at our best and worst of 2019. We're going to go long today, but fuck it. It's a New Year's show, so if you've, uh, if you've got something better to do, do it. Um, but if not, what, 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 what were our highlights and lowlights oh. of uh, 2019? I, I'd like to dedicate the special, um, the special Blast from the Past award was Peter Siddle getting one more run in the Ashes. <laughs> Remember after the Oval in 2015 when a lot of people said, well, that's his last Test match. And yet there he was at Edgebaston bowling beautifully and helping get that win to get Australia off to a winning start. Yeah, when people were getting stuck into Peter Siddle at various intervals uh, after the Oval Test, which he you know, bowled in with a torn hip flexor and all the rest of it. Um, I just remind them that Justin Langer was the man who said, the coach of the team who said that the most important bowler in that in that victory was was Siddle and what he did to balance the attack. So even though he did fall away a bit in well not a bit, he did fall away considerably at the final in, at the final hurdle, uh, partly due to that injury, I'm sure, uh, he was critical when it mattered. So it wasn't just a blast from the past, it was a it was a, a, a big contribution in a, a serious achievement mm. for Australian cricket. So, yes, nice to get that out of the way of, uh, off the top. So, why don't we break this into two categories: good things and bad things. Let's not let's not the complicate best and things. worst. The best and the worst. One of the best for me was uh, Kusal Pereira's innings when he uh, beat South Africa with that ridiculous hundred nine wickets down. I was um, I was vaguely sort of following it along on, online and and then started to notice a Twitter traffic pick up and I started watching that hundred when he was you know, on about 20 or 30 I think and then watched it through to the close at stupid o'clock in Australia on you know streaming it and it was one of the more enjoyable nights I've had alone in bed put it that way. <laughs> I was in a hurry and I was in the tube uh, and uh, I was uh, racing across town and I was underground for half an hour and when I 
jumped in. They were nine down and 45 to win or something like that and thought, well, this is this will end in a second and got out the other end and they had five to win or something. So, um, yeah, he took... <laughs> it was almost, the, yeah, a, a someone... Um, I, I'm plagiarising here. I heard someone describe it as the blueprint for what Ben Stokes went on to do um, at Headingley. He, he'd seen Pereira do it. So, yeah, until... Um, Stokes did what he did. It definitely would have been the, the innings of, of the of the year, the innings of his life, one of the best innings of all time. So yeah, Casal Pereira deserves a gong, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm I rate it above the Stokes innings just because I think the degree of difficulty for a busted ass Sri Lankan team trying to keep it together in South Africa, where they've always struggled, was was even harder than for Stokes in a in a home game at Leeds. Um, that's that's my personal opinion. <laughs> I, I think the whole the whole back end of the World Cup was ridiculous, yeah. starting with the the Carlos Braffitt ton um, to very nearly beat New Zealand, which would have knocked them out, which would have meant the final never happened. Mm-hmm. New Zealand in the two day semi final against yeah. India, where they knocked them off, and then the final itself, um, and culminating for us in in recording our post game show on the camera gantry at Lords when we were both just hyperventilating and <laughs> yeah. pretty much screaming. Um, incoherently into the mics. Oh, I might, I might preference uh, as some of our moments as we go through these. Yeah, a- absolutely that. So having just called the super over and you know um, sprinting outside doing videos after that, all the emotion associated with it. When we gathered on the balcony or on the ga- camera gantry, and the the ground announcer was still um, doing his work, and I think we had like. 10 minutes to file it in order to get it on radio in time all these sorts of Mm. different deadlines we were trying to meet and then just that kind of emotion I haven't listened to it back but I'm glad we did it when we were full of energy and a lot of people listen to that edition of the the daily podcast uh, for good reason (laughs) I think it it is the most downloaded show yeah and I'm not sure whether it was necessarily the most fluent but it certainly had the most amount of passion um, or one of the episodes that had the most amount of passion through that long stretch that we did so yeah back of the World Cup I, I listened to the BBC special they made about um, the last hour of the World Cup uh, the other day and it still sends... Tim you know, Peach's masterpiece. Yeah, it, it really... Peachy did an, an amazing job with that. Well done to him. Um, I absolutely loved uh, going back through it all and, yeah, from a purely personal perspective, what a privilege to have been lucky enough to have called uh, the, the the final closing stages of that of that of that incredible final. It's uh, I was I, I lucked in big time. So I'll, that's for me my number one moment above all else. Um, so definitely the end of the World Cup. Um, Dimith Karuna Ratner's pool party, just the, <laughs> the, the 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 most fun moment, the winner pool of our party. Hall of Fame segment yeah, yeah. of the World Cup. Of just how badly Sri Lanka's campaign was going until they got in the pool, and suddenly it all turned around. So the, yeah, that, that's a good thing for a couple of reasons. One that, that that it won. I'm glad that it won, but also the amount of work we put into preparing that bracket, Jeff, going, deliberately going oh, through God. it, we had all those Twitter polls and all of the, the the audience participation and all the rest of it. It was. Um, it was tons of fun. I think of other sort of um, moments as part of our uh, Hall of Fame each day. Um, the uh, the shade cloth in space idea we had to try and stop the rain falling on the ground and and, and a range of others. Uh, that that was uh, that was a lovely part of our, our daily routine through the World Cup. It's good fun. Yes, and, and if we haven't sent you a t-shirt yet, sorry, we'll see if we can sort that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, 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 there, cut, there are a few things on the to-do list. Yeah, carte blanche apology for that. All, all the best intentions in the world, and we we um, yeah. It, it, let's chalk it up to us um, at the very end of the Ashes, barely being able to spell our own names, let alone put together a, a sufficient spreadsheet of all the people that got in touch with us for t-shirts. We will get there eventually. Yep, well, um, that we we can chalk that up to our worst of 2019 and our best of 2020 when we finally <laughs> sort that out.
Um, what else have you got? What's on your list? Well, I, I, I had here one from April, which is when you won the Wisdom Book of the Year. That was bloody exciting at Lords that night um, when the Wisdom Almanac dinner we had there. That was fucking awesome. Um, and then you went on, of course, to win the MCC. Um, award as well and then uh, the Cricket Writers Club Award uh, to finish off the summer so there was a whole bunch of stuff around Steve Smith men which um, which was uh, very exciting for both of us as that um, got the recognition it, it absolutely deserved um, so that's again a bit indulgent but definitely a highlight as far as what we were able to sort of see and, and you especially as far as what you were able to do through that book and the, the audience you were then talking to around the planet that was pretty exciting. Thank you. That's. Um, I'd, I think it'd be indulgent if I said it, but I think it's okay if you said it. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. No. It was a bloody amazing year in in every sense, professionally, and um, yeah, we're talking about the next one and, and what that might be about. So um, yeah, keep an eye out next year for for part two. Um, what What else have we got? At least Perry seven for at Canterbury after yeah. we drove all night, um, oh. recording an episode on the road. And the, the one thing I'm really sad about is that I've lost that bit of the file where we were recording and you thought I was about to drive up the back of an SUV um, and there, there was a, a I bit think of I was within my rights to believe that you were about to drive up the back of an SUV. I don't <laughs> oh, think no, totally fair. <laughs> I, 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 I wasn't. I, I had actually seen it. I was, going, I was going around it, but you didn't know that. But yeah, the, you're, you're sort of going, yeah, well, I really like Rassi van der Dusters. Jesus fucking Christ, Jeff! <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that we, 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 there were a couple of times we recorded those pods literally on the road, um, which, look... Um, yeah, we, we drove all night to Canterbury, got in at half past six in the morning, slept for three hours and went to watch Elise Perry take six, seven for 15, having been at Manchester till, I don't know, after midnight uh, yeah. in the final group game of the World Cup. I've thought about that a couple of times. Look, it wasn't advisable, but I kind of wouldn't have had it any other way. That hire car that we that we had, I actually had a hire car in, in Wales last week when I was having a weekend away with Rach and um, by coincidence, we got exactly the same uh, make of car, uh, so I brought back some good World Cup, right. World Cup vibes <laughs> from, from that as well. So, um, yeah, the, 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 um, the, the back and forth around the country. Um, the, I remember the night we recorded the podcast. It didn't come up too well, but we walked um, through Nottingham from Trent Bridge. We did it on, mm-hmm. on the walk. That was another, another nice moment too. So um, a, a, a century at Edgebaston, um, which I'll always remember. You know, people will, will speak of it um, probably for the rest of our lives. They'll say... You know, they'll talk of Edgebaston in 2019 and they'll say that they were there to see Rory Burns um, <laughs> post three figures on, on day two of, the, of that test match. And um, the, perhaps the, the best part about that was, despite the fact that we were recording about episode 60 in 60 days or whatever it was, um, there was a conspiracy theory from one character on the internet that we were going to stop doing the show based on our um, disagreement about Rory Burns' 100, whether it was fluent or not. Mm. So that was definitely a highlight for me, getting trolled by um, someone who thought we were about to cease to be a, 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 a podcasting partnership over Rory Burns. The, the highs and the lows, uh, Steve Smith <laughs> making probably the best 100 I've ever seen on day one and Rory Burns making the worst 100 I will ever see on day two. He's going to catch an England. Um, you, 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 he, he's going to keep better beautifully you know yesterday. Yeah, I, I, th- I think he did, and I hope he does because I think Joe Root needs a break and I've gone from the camp of Rory Burns as the worst player I've ever seen to... I 
I hope he captains England yeah. because they need it. Yeah, um, a lot of highs and lows with Glenn Maxwell this year. Yeah. We, uh, we we had that that wonderful hundred that he made in India in the T Twenty. We had a, a disappointing World Cup campaign where it, it's, it seemed like he was about to explode mm. half a dozen times, and then something would happen. He'd get run out, or he'd get a ridiculous dismissal one way or another, and it just didn't come together. Um, and then the interview that we we did with him before the World Cup, which we very nearly missed after I forgot to bring the recording equipment um, <laughs> and had to like race across London to get it and then get back to King's Cross and then get on a train to fucking Bristol, was Bristol, it? Yeah. There, Bristol, yeah. There were some, there um, were some low logistical it, points for you and I and, and uh, you know, forgetting shit and, you know, the usual stuff when you're bouncing around from place to place and not having the right equipment and, you know, embarrassing moments professionally as a result. But there was none scarier than when you called me when I was at Paddington and said, I haven't got the kit. I've got to go back. I may not make the interview. I'm like, fuck me. Um, we, we can say now. We can say now for the benefit of um, the record that we, you know, I suspect had we gone through official channels to get that interview, there's absolutely no way we, that we would have got the interview, but we went through um, our friends at Kookaburra and acquired it that way. So there was one window to speak to Glenn Maxwell. That was it. It wasn't happening again, mm. but mercifully no. um, you were able to just get there in the nick of time. Somehow, somehow with like two minutes to spare, um, drenched in sweat, but nonetheless, we made it. Um, a, a few of the worst things from this year, we mentioned earlier, Ireland cancelling their test matches, yeah. uh, two, you know, one against Sri Lanka and, and one at home against uh, Bangladesh, was it? Yeah, especially after they gave us one of the highlights of the year when they, you know, 11 days after England won the World Cup or whatever it was at Lords, they polled out England in a session for 85, which um, well, we'd see murder and, um, you know, and all the rest. Uh, that was a really special day. But, yeah, like casting forward now, Ireland cricket. Um, we're going to do, do an interview um, with uh, the Chief Executive of Cricket Ireland, Warren Dutram, uh, in January to, to go through all of this because I wouldn't say they're at the crossroads. They'd be overstating it, but it, it's been a it's been a tough dismount for Ireland after that test match and that's reflected um, in, in the couple of tests they won't be playing next year due to the fact that they haven't got the same funding from the ICC they expected to be getting as a full member nation uh, that, so they're, they're, they're short for cash and that's not ideal um, given they've only been a test playing nation for a couple of years through, really through no fault of their own so we'll keep a watching brief on that but yeah a, a negative one to, to end their story in 2019 um, Afghanistan massively fucking up their World Cup campaign with political oh. bickering was a low light for me as well sacking yeah. the captain before the world cup installing three new captains in three formats um and now after all of that they've um, gone back to asgar afghan to, to captain the team which is what rashid khan and co wanted all along um but they just derailed their chance to have a, a any sort of coherence or consistency at the world cup by doing yeah gulbadeen naib who in some respects was a positive um also um yeah he he um yeah Perhaps the less said about Gulbuddin's last month or so, the better. Um, the BBC, the BCCI, um, we already mentioned, uh, sort of a, a late entry for the worst of list, but Sir Afghan saying that um, despite the fact that we've got this brand new one-day ICC championship starting um, in this sort of three-year rolling cycle to qualify for the World Cup, really sort of excellent um, initiative, uh, but they're going to circumvent that by playing their own tournament to, um, yeah, to coin in as much money as possible between uh, the three biggest boards, which will no doubt be at the expense of the, the smaller um, boards who are struggling to keep up. So, um, uh, you know, I thought we were rid of all this bullshit a couple of years ago, but, oh, well, they, they return to type but, these types, don't they? And and not just that, but saying that because the projected revenues um, for the ICC are a bit lower 
than expected. The BCCI now want um, as much money as they were projected to get, even though the actual income for the ICC will be less. So that would mm. mean that that would have to come at the expense of everyone else, and it, it won't won't be at the expense of Australia and England, put no. it that way. So. Um, yeah, it did, it's some, some disappointment there. It's sad to see uh, Mark Robinson lose the England women's coaching yeah. gig. He's been a, a, a really welcome, friendly figure around the cricket world the last few years, and, and we've enjoyed dealing with him. Yeah, it might have been the right time for Robbo to go, but I was pretty gutted when he did go. Um, yeah, he, he, he led that side. Well, sorry, off the field, was, was he took a, a side that was kind of nowhere uh, the year before and, and led them to a World Cup um, uh, from from uh, from his vantage point uh, in the dressing room. And um, a lot of the players on that side um, it, it say the most wonderful things about him as a coach. So, yeah, they're, they're moving to a new generation now under Lisa Kitely, but um, well-played Mark Robinson. I suppose we, we've already talked about it on the show today, but climate change really starting to rip as far as what we're witnessing on the field. I know that... Um, you know, we, we haven't really talked too much about the effect of the bushfires yet, but, you know, seeing a, w, a, not a, a big bash game cancelled due to, um, due to the, uh, the, the amount of smoke which was around in Canberra the other week, seeing those pictures of Steve O'Keefe bowling and, indeed, um, the, the whole final day of that, that first-class fixture at the SCG where O'Keefe said later he wouldn't want his children exposed to such conditions, yet there were 22 professional cricketers duking it out. Look, it's, uh, it, it's, it's something we're going to keep talking about through 2020, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and I'd, I'd see on the notes that you wanted to look at predictions for the decade ahead, and that's really mine, is that I think this, this decade is when that issue is going to be at the forefront for the whole of the next 10 years, yeah. and we've seen it biting cricket already in terms of the heat and in terms of the fires, in terms of the droughts, um, the, the parts of Australia where you can't play because there's no grass and it's 46 degrees or whatever it is, uh, uh, that's that's going to intensify over the next 10 years and um, the, the last-ditch efforts to try to limit it as much as possible are going to intensify as well. So I think that that's going to probably be one of the defining stories of the sport in the next decade. It probably says a fair bit that I haven't got that many more things listed as bad moments. I should, though, note that we missed one big positive for world cricket. That was the... Um, and, you know, putting all partisan interest to one side, the Ben Stokes miracle at Headingley. Um, you know, uh, whether Casal Pereira's innings was better or Ben Stokes' innings was better is neither here nor there. The fact that we were so privileged to see something like that... Uh, done in that way it's not just the the bulk of runs and the partnership at the end it was just the the aesthetics of how he did that with Jack Leach was just beyond belief and um, yeah to be standing on the balcony there watching that play out uh, is something that I will absolutely never forget uh, we, we were we saw you know it, it, whether it's the greatest test match of all time or the greatest comeback of all time or whatever it's certainly the greatest finish uh, of all time and all the drama around um, Nathan Lyon and Jack Leach, the other uh, actors in that, Tim Payne and, and uh, the, the, the failed review and all the rest. Um, it, it was such a, a great day. But um, I suppose you could have in the good camp and the bad camp. Just England's crazy year. Um, uh, Yazrana from Wisdom's put together a, a, a hilarious piece on the website, 32 things that happened to England in, in 2019. And it's very funny and I can recommend it. Like, you know, I, I kind of forgot that this was the year when Roston Chase took eight for 60 against them in a, in a test match, yeah. you know, part time. 
time off spinner um, all the way through so I guess this week when they lost half their team to Gastro so you know and everything in between so it's been a, a pretty fun year for England cricket I say fun uh, mad cap uh, 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 but um, I'm sure they'll live to, to fight another day another negative for you and I which I have to mention is that through that World Cup we were waking up at 5.30 every Monday morning in order to make it to the Yahoo studio so we could do the weekly uh, studio show that we were doing for them but I tell you what some of those Sunday night train trips when we were coming back from up north getting back to bed by I don't know 2.30 2, 2.30 by the time we'd finally gone to sleep and knowing that we had three hours before we had to back it up again and appear semi-credible uh, on a on a program that a fair bit of money was being put into uh, by those who were making it um, that wasn't fun but I mean small price to pay of course um, a lack of sleep but I, I couldn't um, I couldn't put that list together without noting um, those 5.30 wake up calls were brutal well the worst part of about it was that we were being filmed so it wasn't like going into early morning radio when at least you can look like shit as long exactly. as you sound okay but but you had to look alert and awake and be sitting up and, and yeah be be washed and brushed and all the rest of it so um yeah that was that was uh that was not up there um i i'd also like to mention uh, Virat Kohli's year in one day international cricket another 1377 <laughs> runs <laughs> and he wasn't even the top run scorer because Rohit Sharma made more and, and Shai Hope who's, who's really emerged for the West Indies as a you know such a, a, a special player 1345 runs for him in one day as in the year um, and on my massive lowlights list Shakib Al Hassan getting done for yeah. Uh, colluding with a match fixer after the wonderful World Cup that he had that was a, a real a high to a low and and you know we'll be going to Bangladesh next year but we won't be seeing Shakib play. And there's a lot more we could have on this list both good and bad I'm sure we've missed plenty uh, but on the basis that uh, we've been talking for a really long time I think we should wrap it up. I'm going to share your prediction for the decade ahead it's going to be climate change that's why we keep talking about it. Cricket administrators around the world are going to have to get their head around this and and put some muscle uh, into uh, trying to help uh, play uh, their part. Uh, and uh, and I suppose um, another uh, prediction will be that I, I, I... Well, this might be a wishful prediction. I, I, I believe and hope that cricket's relationship with gambling will, will improve in the next decade. I, I'm convinced that it's going to be unsustainable to have this gambling advertising all over our sport. And I think that... We, we've crossed the line on that now as far as the way people think of it. So I think that's that's one area we can be hopeful that while it looks fucking terrible at the moment, that in a few years' time, that, that'll be a lot better. I think it, it might be better in Australia. I'm not sure it will be elsewhere. South Africa, the, the sport is skint um, and most of the domestic teams are named after gambling companies as actual naming rights sponsors True. at the moment. So there are there are parts of the world where I can't see that improving. Um, but but one one final good news bit I'd like to mention, Pavel Florin, oh, yes. the Romanian cricketer who, who became a sensation this year. I, I don't know Pavel, I've never spoken to him, but I got a nice Twitter DM from him on Christmas wishing me a Merry Christmas <laughs> and, a, and a Happy New Year. So he's, um, he, he's obviously sitting there individually messaging everybody on his Twitter account so he's, he's he's got a very big heart and a broad smile and he's made a lot of people smile this year with what he's brought to the game. And good on you Pav and indeed this podcast has made us smile week in week out, it's been an absolute joy bringing it to you, uh, thanks for being uh, part of it through the daily shows through the weekly shows, the interviews, the crisscrossing of the uh, of the of the country with England uh, and, and, the, and the United Kingdom more generally through the English summer, the test matches, the World Cup um, the, the, the time we were back in Australia, the 
the live shows were, were brilliant too. We really love bringing them to you. There'll be so much more of that in 2020. And just your loyalty, really. Uh, people are really nice about this show. Even when we do it when we're knackered, like as I obviously have been tonight, people still say such lovely things and they know we're trying our best and um, giving it a crack every week. And, and um, yeah, the fact that we've done it every week of 2019, I think it's fair to say we've recorded something every week of the year. That was our goal. I said that. Uh, in this corresponding show last year that we would do something every week uh, of 2019 and I think we've achieved that and that wouldn't have been possible without the amazing support of people listening to us week in week out. Yep, half a million downloads during the World Cup alone. It gives us the, the boost to keep on going. So thanks for your support. If you're on the patron page, thank you especially for that. That's been the logistical thing that's allowed us to do what we've done. If you want to sign up to support the show, patron.com slash the final word. Thanks to Bad Producer, our production company, Jay Mueller, DC, Astrid, do a wonderful job there in getting the show out every week that we do it. Um, thanks to our sponsors for this show, Wisdom Cricket Monthly and Future talent and thanks to everyone who's rated and reviewed the show or shared it around or sent a link to their friends or taught their dad how to listen to podcasts while he does the dishes because all of those things make a massive difference in getting an audience to the show and the show to the audience righto jeff for the final time in 2019 this has been the final word adam collins and jeff lemon can't wait to do it all over again in 2020 until then be safe have a great new year Talk soon. Let's do the outro song one more time. How do you go about it?